1891, an explorer named Joseph Bradshaw found some cave paintings in Australia's far northwestern Kimberley region near the Prince Regent River. The Bradshaw rock paintings, or Bradshaw figures, are stunning artwork to behold, and there are thousands of what are now known as Bradshaw galleries. Still, there is one particular painting that author Terry Wilson points to in his fascinating book, The Secret History of Crop Circles, featuring what is known as Gion Gion figures. This particular image shows the figures superimposed over a kangaroo and snake. Wilson noted that the kangaroo and snake seemed to be fleeing, and the figure leftmost in the image might be wearing a helmet of some kind. To the left of that figure is a strange crescent shape with rays coming out of it that looks like it's hovering above the ground. This crescent shape has been reproduced and discussed so many times that you may recognize it on sight. This entire Gion Gion image is leaned on quite heavily by the proponents of the ancient aliens hypothesis, which is not something we've addressed at Astonishing Legends, and we're not going there tonight either. It was not the purported space-helmeted figure that caught Wilson's eye so much as the floating object and then more pointedly what is beneath it, and that is a strange pattern of concentric circles seemingly on the ground, with some smaller circles connected to them. These bear a striking resemblance to what we refer to today as a crop circle, a term coined by electrical engineer, author, and researcher Colin Andrews in the late 1980s. The Bradshaw rock paintings are anywhere from 17 to 26,000, or some researchers say even 50,000 years old. Could they be the first representation of a crop circle? Wilson himself says that it may be a stretch to deduce that. Still, it is an intriguing idea, and his newly updated book, The Secret History of Crop Circles, includes over 312 instances of circles that he's personally researched. Every single one of them was before 1980. The 1500s, the 1800s, the early 1900s all contain events that potentially match the crop circle profile, which begs the question, have hoaxers been creating these for hundreds of years? And if not, who or what is making them? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I was not aware at the time that I walked into that field. Within hours, I was to become one of only three people in the world researching these phenomena. Colin Andrews, from his book, Crop Circles, Signs of Contact. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on crop circles. Don't skip this. Wait, what are you talking about? Well, this is one of those <laughs> topics that I'm excited to cover, but I'm also concerned mm -hmm. people aren't even going to press play because they're like, those two old English dudes already said they did this years ago. Mystery solved, uh, man. Yeah, well, then uh, there's really no point in telling them not to skip these two episodes because they've already not pressed play, right? Oh, yeah, point taken. Yeah, well, uh, this is another one of those legends <laughs> that looks relatively simple on the surface, but the yeah. undercurrent is astronomical, both from a human perspective and a paranormal one. These episodes are going to bring a lot to light that most people who've been interested in crop circles have never heard about. That's my wager. Yeah, I got to say, my perspective shifted a little and even got larger in an overall sense of the phenomenon and the interaction with humanity. Hate to sound so grandiose, but that's what we're talking about here, folks. I'm uh, completely aligned with you. Well, in other very quick news, we did want to thank 
Rain Wilson for mm-hmm. coming on our last <laughs> episode as his alter ego, Terry Carnation. What? Yeah, it, it was oh, a fun April Fool's show, and we had a blast doing it. We want to be clear that his podcast, Dark Air, mm-hmm. is a real show. It actually launched on April Fool's Day, so definitely go check it out. It's hilarious, yeah. and you can find it wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'd also like to thank our good friend Richard Hannum for coming over to Blanket Fortiana to play as well. And since he lost our Pick the Fake Paranormal Story game, we really need to come up with a better name than that, you know. Yeah, we do. I, I, maybe I that can be a listener clunky. contest or something. Okay. Well, I'll stink at that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's graciously agreed to donate $250 to a charity of our choice. And tonight, we're announcing that we're picking the Animal Rescue League of Berks County. Uh, yes, the Animal Rescue League of Berks County in Pennsylvania is a charitable 501c3 organization caring for nearly 5,000 animals each year to help them find second chances in a new home oh. or to help reunite them with their grateful owners. For more than 65 years, they've worked tirelessly to care for the sick, treat the injured, comfort the unwanted, and protect the abused. Whether helping people in need keep their pets through surrender prevention programs offering low-cost veterinary services and clinics, as well as outreach and education events throughout the country, their work goes far beyond the walls of the shelter. Yeah, and they have a perfect score at CharityNavigator.com, which is the website we trust to pick a charity that is transparent and responsible in using their donations to maximize benefits for the animals or people they assist. So thanks so much, Rich, for doing that. Yeah, I I still can't believe we asked him to be a guest on the show. Mm. He graciously gave us a few (laughs) hours of his time, and at the end of it, he lost a game that cost him $250. Hey, you bet you you pays your money that you didn't intend to, and you takes your chances. So (laughs) you should know that, right? Well, it's it's for a good cause. Come on. That's true. That's true it is. All right, let's get into tonight's show. Well, now hold on a minute, because before we begin... There's a few things that I'd like to say. Hold on. We haven't even started. What do you mean, hold on a minute? <laughs> well, just, just be your, your patience, please, oh, sir. Lord. Okay. I haven't done this in a very long time. Okay. And it actually ties in with something that you said, an idea expressed, I think, in our Alien Autopsy okay. series. Remember that? Okay. Yeah, of course. And, and what it is, is that I think for a lot of our listeners here, this is going to be one of those subjects that you thought you knew about, but by the end... We'll be left amazed and wondering what's really going on with crop circles in a good way. Well, yeah, and it's kind of like what I said at the top of the housekeeping. I mean, I was joking around about it, but the reality (laughs) is it bums me out a little bit when we do a a topic like this and people think, oh, that's been dead and gone, mystery solved, whatever. Mm -hmm. What is this? It's X number of years old, and they don't even click play because they see it in the title. But this is the thing, folks, and this is the thing you need to stick with with us. There is always so much more to the story. And there's those diehard people that are into stuff like this, and they're there. There's that, you know, the group of researchers who've been working on it for decades, and then there's the fans around that. And that's definitely a community. But the larger groups of people out there in the world who are really into the paranormal, who think they know a whole lot about it, they tend to be dismissive of these topics that they think have been worked over. And the thing is, you don't really know all of the undercurrent here. There's really a whole lot more to it. This is one of those big name topics and hot button issues, perhaps, in the paranormal field and the genre. And like many people, maybe even most, you might have preconceived notions that all these crop circles are just the efforts of clever and sometimes talented pranksters that for their personal reasons have been pulling off elaborate hoaxes destroying valuable property, and breaking local laws for decades and generations, just to stir the imagination of the gullible and receive some notorious credit. And certainly, that has been the case in a few of these instances of the more simple circles, I believe. And maybe 
that's where my mind has been changed. Maybe even some of the more complicated ones. We're going to take a look at that. Okay, wait a minute. Right, just right out of the gate. I think you're coming yeah. out with a little bit of bias against the hoaxers. I want to say that I, <laughs> I have respect for right. some of the things they've accomplished. Some really amazing work, I think, has been done by them. And it's so nebulous that it's hard to say what they have and haven't done. But they've definitely done something. Yeah. But you're just immediately like, you're, they're destroying valuable property. I'm like, well... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a couple hundred dollars worth of damage to the crops. The bigger problem is the people coming to look at yeah. it, in my opinion. Okay. Hold up there yourself, sir, because okay. these are all <laughs> factors, and and this is what I'm getting at. You may not realize that you can't just leave it at the doorstep of hoaxers and say, well, there you go. A few people admitted to them. No, I agree with closed. that. I agree Mystery with solved. that. Yeah. And so what I learned, there is much more going on here, and the people that are the hoaxers are involved in an intricate way that they may not even be aware of. That was a revelation to me. I think a lot of people will say, well, there you go. They hoaxed it. They admitted it. Case closed. Mystery solved. It's all them all the time. Everything that's been done. And certainly that is the hardcore skeptical debunker side of it. And that, there you go. People just said they did it so we can leave it there. But what have we learned, Scott? Every time you say that, that doesn't close the case. No, that's mystery solved. And it's never mystery solved. It never is. And it goes back to the the phrase that we first came across in the Kelly Hopkinsville series, the need yeah. for cognitive closure. And everybody wants to have that cognitive closure. And especially folks who are afraid of what it means if they can't wrap it up in a little bow right. and say, okay, I, I'm done. Think I don't have to think about this anymore because this is ridiculous, which is... And that's certainly the case. Uh, sometimes you look at the confirmation bias of people that are involved and you think, well, they've thrown X, Y, and Z out the window. We can't believe anything they say. Right. But there's there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. And that's what will come out as we continue yeah. to investigate it. What you're talking about is something that's a pet peeve of mine, as well as Marcello Truzzi, who I, I keep mentioning because I love that guy and his point of view, because he is one of the uh, founding co-chairmen of the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, PSYCOP. We talk about that quite a bit. And a founder of the Society for Scientific Exploration. And he had this idea that there is such a thing called pseudo-skepticism. And I call it lazy skepticism, where you don't investigate it because it should be obvious that this is pseudo something. It's baloney. Oh, you're throwing We're down the gauntlet here. with the skeptics right out of the gate here. Eh, not, not so much, because here's the thing, is that there, if you're, you're going to be skeptical. calling. Well, hold on a second, because that's Marcello Truzzi's idea. What I'm saying is I just agree with it. Oh, okay, gotcha. You could be upset with that concept. Right. Well, what I'm saying is that that's the logical point of view, is that if you're going to take something apart, actually do it then. Don't just dismiss it out of hand because it sounds crazy. Yeah, put your back into it. <laughs> well, that is part of the scientific rigor that it requires, not just saying that, well, obviously it sounds nuts, so we don't really need to look at this, do we? It's like, yeah, you should, because you should also have reasons why you believe that this isn't real, rather than being lazy about it. That is pseudo-skepticism. When it comes back to this case, rational common sense logic will show that setting crop circles aside as nothing more than mischievous pranks doesn't come close to explaining the execution let alone the purpose of the more massive and brilliantly intricate geometric patterns found in the more complex circles. But there might be a difference. There are nuances. It's not just cut or dried. It's not just black or white here. And you might even come to believe that crop circles are more than just decoration by some mysterious force. They might be, as many who research them believe, a communication, messages 
from an advanced intelligence. Some of them, not not all of them. Some of them, I think, uh, involve computers and people sneaking into fields. I do. Okay, we're <laughs> we're gonna talk, we're gonna talk about that because I'm not here personally to prove they exist. And I think a lot of people will start off thinking that because, as I said to our good friend Dr. Chris Cogswell of the Mad Scientist Podcast. And go do check it out. It's pretty good. When he initially poo-pooed the idea of crop circles at our river research thread by saying, quote, yo, crop circles are hella fake, LOL, end, end quote. I do love Dr. Cox. <laughs> well, he cuts, look, he's a scientist. He cuts right to the point and, yes. and a good friend. But yes. I want to make it clear, this topic for us, like most all of our show topics, is not about proving one of my existing hypotheses or ideas about a subject. It's about answering one of my main questions about all the things we cover. What is going on here? That's what I want to know. Is this real or fake? And, and either way, what's it all about? Who or what is making these works of art? Because in either case, they're works of art. What's the meaning behind it, if any? And I'm not going to tell you I think these designs are made by aliens or an interdimensional intelligence because at this point, I, I don't know. But there are some paths to thought and thinking about this that may lead to some greater conclusions, more philosophical, meaningful conclusions. That's what I'm talking about here. But I'd sure like to find out either way. I, I want more understanding about this, since I think at least these things are significant and are meant to be paid attention to. Because what can't be denied by anyone is that someone or something is making these massive and super intricate patterns and grain stalks. They do indeed exist. There is evidence that remains. Unlike a UFO sighting where there's some trace elements or there's a ring in Delphus, you know, there's some accounts that people have that you may or may not believe, these things are left behind to be examined. So they exist, and there are strange properties about them. Also, unlike an NFT, these uh, crop circle is there. <laughs> at least for a few right. weeks, you can go look at it in the real yeah. world. You know, and right. by the way, cut to crop circle NFTs. I just want to say we originated that idea here at Astonishing Legends, <laughs> uh, Astonishing Legends podcast, <laughs> astonishinglegendsproductions.com yeah. copyright trademark. Okay. Perpetuity. Are you saying that uh, <laughs> that crop circles could be uh, digitally blockchain to have some value to Absolutely. A I already did it. I did it 10 minutes ago. Why not? And I hit the trademark button. Remember, I okay, have that on very my good. desk right here. Yeah. I'm glad you're that uh, proactive about it because here's the thing. <laughs> We all have to agree that this means something, well, at least with NFTs, it's a, an agreed upon concept that these things have meaning. And yes. once that's gone, they're worthless in a sense, unless you have some art that you like. You know, that's the reason to invest in one, perhaps. But yes. we would be wise to consider the humans involved in the study or denial of this phenomenon. But like with all paranormal events or claims, like the Patterson-Gimlin film, we should look more closely at the evidence and not just the personalities around it. If this is done by some advanced human technology and executed by a team of people of some authority, whether it's academic or military, scientific, governmental, or just genius and mischievous basement tinkers or inventors, what's the sociological or psychological value to this? Why does this happen? Why does it work? Why do people do this? We're back to looking at hoaxes. What do they hope to gain with all this effort? If this is the work of some non-human intelligence, then what is their message to humanity? Well, I mean, it could be some super high-end technical narcissism and <laughs> yeah, megalomania. It could yeah. be that. 
And yeah. by the way, if you've got the skill to do this for this long, I'm into that. But for me, yeah. as we went through this, it's a complex and layered phenomena that has evolved yeah. over the years. There is a lot more to this going on than just pranks. Yes. And whether it is pranks or what the purpose is, I want to know then how they are done. I want to know what's behind it, who's doing this, how is it accomplished? Because if it is just humans doing this, again, why, but also how? Because some of these are pretty spectacular. Yeah, absolutely Just in the are. execution itself, I'm very impressed by what can be done overnight or in a matter of hours or minutes even. Couldn't agree more. That's why we're taking a look at this. And I think this gets very John Keel, I got to say. It has also all these elements that ring back. The chasing of the phenomenon and the further it steps away from you, but also interacts with you. The trickster element is there. All these things, this is a, a perfect example of a wide-ranging and overarching paranormal phenomenon. So definitely worthy of our consideration, and I think the listener is going to be very well entertained and uh, surprised when we get done with this. There's a couple of things that I really love about the history that we have with the show, how far we've gone. One of them I want to go back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, because it was yeah. a point of view that probably wouldn't have occurred to me naturally, and it's one that you brought to my understanding, and it, and it goes back to the PGF or the Patterson-Gimlin film. When you said during that series, which was one of our most in-depth series ever, and for those of you that don't know what that is, that's the most famous Bigfoot film of all time. We did a mm -hmm. multi-part series on it. Talked to Bob Gimlin, who was there. All of that stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun. But when you said, everybody's like, oh, well, I heard that was a hoax. It's a costume. It's X, Y, and Z. Blah, right. and, they, and they wanted to all write it off. And you said to me during the course of that series and to our listeners – Look at the film. The film is the evidence. What's on yeah. the film? Let's talk about the film. And that's the thing with the crop circles. Let's look at the crop circles. Stop right. with, oh, I saw a guy jump the fence and go in there with a backpack or whatever. Go from the result and work backwards. And that is uh, one of the best things I've learned from you, my friend, since we started no, this. Thank you. I, well, that, of course... <laughs> <laughs> I like that approach. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. A lot of a lot of uh, people who study the uh, Patterson Gimlin film and Bigfoot in general, and all paranormal topics, that is one conclusion they say that often gets overlooked. Because I think, as human nature will dictate and compel us to do, we look at the people bringing the ideas forward, and we focus on them. And sometimes, on the worst end of it, it becomes an ad hominem attack. It's like, yes. well, that guy's a nutcase. Yeah. That guy's a, a goofball. And yeah, there's a lot of eccentric happenings and events, paranormal events, draw eccentric people. That is part of the nature of the study. And a lot of people who don't consider themselves eccentric or straight arrows, narrow path persons, and not to say that they're narrow-minded, it's just that they don't bother with this kind of stuff. They don't look into it. So there are a lot of authoritative people who won't bother to weigh in on this. Or if they do, it's very casually dismissed. And that's fine. That's their choice. But you're going to get some colorful people, let's say, involved in this. It goes back to, like you said, looking at the evidence. It's like that, and I can't remember now, God, I wish Rob Christopherson was here right now, or Ryan Sprague or somebody, but like, it's like that UFO photo with the guy took the pictures, black and white. I don't even know, it's mm -hmm. in the 50s or the 40s or whatever. Later turned out to be like a light fixture with some bulbs in it or something. Oh, or there's uh, another one where they yeah. threw it up in the air and took a picture of it. And it's like, but you know how you figured that out? You analyze the photo. And then you found things right. that look like the photo. And we even talked a, a little bit about that with the Kira object and the right. 
right. the ashtray that turned up. So it's like there's a lot of ways to look at all this stuff. But the, the thing to do and the thing that I like about your approach here is like, let's start with the result and work backwards from this. And then I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Well, again, you go back to the Patterson-Gimlin film. Nobody ever said that film itself was the hoax. They believe the hoax was what was shown in the film. Right. So nobody said the the film itself was a composited optical mat effect where something was put into the film in that set of 16 millimeter footage. No one ever said that that itself was fake. They think that it's a person in a suit. Well, let's look at that. Don't look at the personality of Roger Patterson or Bob Gimlin because doesn't matter what their personalities were or what they were attempting to do or not. You have to look at what's on the film. So in this case, we're going to look at the crop circles themselves. And I want to ask you before we begin, when I brought this topic up years ago, this is when we were starting to talk about doing a podcast, you said something to me that it took me a long time to figure out. The more complex ones you believed were more likely to be the fake ones, the human uh, engineered ones. I couldn't understand because I thought like, well, if a human's going to do it, they're going to make a simple one, not these really complex ones, because I couldn't understand how that could be accomplished in the parameters in which they are found or, or the details. And I, it took me a while, but I figured out what you were talking about in that if this were a natural phenomenon, and as you brought up, maybe like the bubble circles at Lake Baikal, if it's a natural phenomenon, then that would say that the more complex designs were more likely to be fake because that goes outside the realm of them being organic. Certainly nature produces these types of patterns. We see that all the time. As one of the figures, Nancy Talbot, will later say, and we'll cover uh, what her thoughts are, look at the head of a sunflower and the way that that's patterned. Look at seed pods. Look at the nautilus. All these things we're going to talk about, which are natural organic shapes, if you go beyond that, then, then it's less likely that these are natural and more man-made. So I understand it. Is that what you're talking about? I guess my point was, and this is, I think, a fundamental difference between mm -hmm. how you and I approach these things. <laughs> I feel like when it comes to humanity, when you look mm -hmm. at crop circles, and we know for a fact, even the most well-educated, most well-informed researchers who've been studying crop circles forever will tell you that there is a huge preponderance of hoaxes going on here. And that's oh, something sure, that we certainly. don't usually have. With Bigfoot, I think, yeah, a lot of people are like, yeah, there's Bigfoot hoaxers out there. And yeah, we know yeah. there's the guy, one of my favorites of all time, was the dude who made the giant penguin feet and walked on the beach with them somewhere. I can't remember where that was. Just brilliant. And everybody's like, oh my God, there was a 10-foot penguin out here. Right, Genius. Right. But, right. So there's like these cases where people are like, oh, we know this was a hoax. That was a hoax. X, Y, and Z. But in this case, yes, I think when you look at these and you look at the history of this and you look at the circles that started out and going back to ancient times, and they were simple circles, and maybe even circles that got a little more complicated where they made a pattern of some kind. And we'll talk about the different patterns that they do. I felt that those might be either naturally occurring or possibly supernatural. Right. But when right. they get really, really super complex, especially mathematically complex, where mm -hmm. you, you might, as a human, to hoax it, need a computer or it's a Mandelbrot set of fractals or that kind of thing. Ooh, right. Yeah, when you get into all of that, to me, that's the tell. If you're playing poker with that person that's doing the Mandelbrot set, that's like, that's their tell. It's like, well, look what I made over here. That's the vanity right. of humanity. 
right there to me. Oh, nice. You get, we got to put that on a shirt. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. It just uh, like, uh, it, but that's, that is what I'm thinking. It's the vanity of <laughs> right. humanity. Here's, oh, look, look Ooh, at this yeah. one. It's shaped like a portrait and it has binary code in it. It's like, okay, I am way more impressed with this circle in the middle of nowhere that there's no tracks mm-hmm. to and from that showed up in the middle of the night. And not only that, it's really highly possible that no one's ever going to see it or notice it except the farmer who probably won't tell anybody about it. Right. That to me, that's the real crop circle. The real crop circle is not something that has ASCII code in it, which was developed on Earth. That's not what it is. So that's just... Okay, well, you're going to force my hand talking about uh, poker here, but all of these elements that we find with crop circles can be achieved by humans, I believe. Yeah. Because there's nothing in here that blows our mind. There's no levitating stocks of of crops. Yeah, that would be amazing. If you went in there, it was like a looper situation and things are floating up in the air. Yeah, that would be amazing. (laughs) However, there are weird, uh, let's say, side effects or phenomena that go with some of these genuine crop circles. And there are ways to determine a genuine and a fake one. So what I will say, this is all a complicated or a larger equation and a sliding scale, perhaps. And like a chemical equation, you want to balance each side because that's when things work. So that's what you you aim to find some balance in the equation. And so when you add something to one side of the equation, it affects the other side. In this case, say the complexity of the crop circle is one factor, but the other part of the equation is there was evidence that this does not exist in the field yesterday, and suddenly now this thing is about 20 square acres. How did that happen overnight? How many people would that take? That's another part of the equation. I agree. I agree. And here's the other thing I will say as a mark in your column there. Right. And something I firmly believe about conspiracies, the more people that are involved, the less likely it is to be kept a secret. And when oh, you, that's so always the, the case. Yeah. yeah. So the bigger the circle is, regardless of the complexity of it, which again, like I said, when right. it's like, oh, I think a computer got involved, we had to do math and lay things out. That feels very human to me. But on the other hand, if you're talking about a hundred people going out trying to do something in two hours in the dark and not leave any tracks and it's geometrically perfect right. and also keep it a secret for decades... I don't believe in that either. That's the part of the equation that we have to examine and something we should all keep in mind as we go through this episode. There are factors that you have to accept as part of this equation for this thing to make logical sense. Yeah. It's like the equation force equals mass times acceleration. How can it be that a piece of straw can get stuck into a tree or a fence post during a tornado? Well, a piece of straw is light and it's fragile. It's easily breakable, but... With enough force, as you find during a tornado, which is acceleration, it can get stuck into a tree. By the way, personally seen this. I have personally seen yeah. a straw embedded in a telephone pole after a hurricane at the beach in North Carolina. That side of the equation, the acceleration part of the equation, is way upped because of the tornado. That's why this tiny piece of mass can do an amazing thing. Yes. Which you cannot do. You cannot push it into the tree yourself. Right. And actually, I've heard of martial artists being able to take a paper straw and stick it into a potato. Yeah. That's a feat. Well, and there's sleight of hand guys can do amazing things with playing cards, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ricky Jay could fling a, a playing card across the stage and get it to stick into a open watermelon. 
Hey, how was the beach last week, man? Almost everything about that trip was awesome. Almost? Yeah, you know, we rented a small beach house at a quiet little beach here in North Carolina. I've been going to since I was a kid, and it was Mm -hmm. great to take my son down there and start a new tradition. Yeah, but... Well, you know how rental houses are, especially at the beach, and this one had a Mm. mattress in the master bedroom that felt like a 30-year-old trampoline behind an abandoned house. It was horrifically (laughs) uncomfortable. (laughs) That does suck, man. Yeah, Yeah, you got that right. We were majorly missing our purple mattress that we have here at home. Nothing will remind you faster of how great a purple mattress is than a night or two on anything else. You know, purple is comfort reinvented. It's not memory foam. It uses what they call the grid, a stretchy gel material that's amazingly supportive for your back and legs while cushioning your shoulders, neck, and hips. I don't know how mine does it. It's just fantastic. Purple doesn't trap air either. Air actually circulates and flows through it, so you never overheat. That was another uncomfortable issue about that mattress at the beach room. Hi, this is Sheila, still in shock over Australian Hot Pockets. Back to astonishing legends. But getting back to natural phenomenon, yeah, look, I would go along with this if these were natural organic results of a rare biological action like fairy rings. You've heard right. of those? Oh, absolutely. We've talked about them on the show. Exactly. So if they were that simple, then that makes sense to me. So what is a fairy ring? Well, a fairy ring, and this is from Wikipedia, it's also known as a fairy circle or elf circle or elf ring or pixie ring. It's a naturally occurring ring or arc of mushrooms that are mainly found in forested areas, but also appear in grasslands or or rangelands. And you can see this sometimes in people's yards where there's a dark circle. And those are possibly where mushrooms are going to grow or the mycelium of a fungus is growing in the ground and it absorbs nutrients by secretion of enzymes from the tips of the hyphae. Threads making up the mycelium. Mm. And that's just me reading the genesis of the uh, fairy ring from Wikipedia. Yes. uh, But anyway, you've seen them. That's a natural occurrence. But the crop circle phenomenon is a whole lot more than that. So it's not just stalks of grain and plants falling in a certain direction because of fungus. So a lot of people will point to that, but it really has nothing to do with that. Other than that's a natural formation of a circle by completely organic means. So let's go over a few of our main sources for tonight's information here. One of them is the seminal book by Colin Andrews with Stephen J. Spinisi called Crop Circles, Signs of Contact. Um, uh, just can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, sure. I'm not sure what seminal means exactly, but that's not the first <laughs> book on crop circles, which is also Colin uh, Andrews was involved in. That's yes. the one I read. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not convinced we read the same book here. I thought we had purchased the same book. <laughs> I don't think we have. All right. So I read the very first book about right. crop circles, a term coined by one of the authors, Colin ah, Andrews. He's the yes. man that created that expression. The book is called Circular Evidence, a detailed investigation of the flattened, swirled crops phenomenon. It doesn't okay, even have crop so- circles in the title there, <laughs> although right. on the cover now of the one that I have, this came out yeah. in 1989, which is a long time ago for you kids. But it does say at the bottom, the compelling firsthand account by England's leading investigators of the crop circle enigma. That's the only place crop circle appears on the cover right. here. Right. It's tiny and it's in italics at the bottom. But anyway, this is the seminal book, which I'm holding up. Those of you who can't see. Sir, you're absolutely right about that. And here I thought we were on the same page and literally we were not. Yeah, <laughs> but but I will say this was also a seminal book in that, uh, for me it was, because I, that's the first Which one, one did I you bought. read? Crop Circles, Signs of Contact, again, by Colin Andrews with Stephen J. Spinisi, or okay. Spinisi. And this came out, uh, copyright 2003. So 
It's yes, a little bit more than I read is 89. So that's good. So yours right. is more current than mine. And the other book that I bought with this other one a few years ago, in anticipation of covering this topic one day, is also by Colin Andrews with Cynthia Andrews called On the Edge of Reality. I have that on Kindle. Yes. Yeah. And, I ha and I've read some chapters of it, but not all of it. I right. also have, this will be more of a part two thing, but I also have Crop Circles, The Greatest Mystery of Modern Times by Lucy Pringle. So yes, you're absolutely right. You could say the seminal, seminal book of the phenomenon is Circular Evidence by Colin Andrews, in that perhaps he's the first one to put out a book on this phenomenon, and it's considered one of the Bibles of crop circles. Yes, along with his co-writer, Pat Delgado, on that one. Right. So here's just a little bit about Colin Andrews from his bio. Colin Andrews, a former electrical engineer with the British government, is universally considered the world's leading authority on crop circles. Beginning his study of crop circles in 1983 with his first book, Circular Evidence, and it became a worldwide bestseller. He was a scientific consultant for the movie Signs, the blockbuster movie about crop circles starring Mel Gibson. Colin travels all over the world investigating crop formations and lectures regularly on the subject. And then it goes on to say that his website, cropcircleinfo.com, is an exhaustive resource. But that one there is, uh, that's listed in the book. It seems to have been taken over by an Italian pro-online gambling site. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I never visited that one. I actually have been uh, looking at colinandrews.net, which is- Yes, that's uh, still, the one you should go to. Yeah, right. still up and running. Yes. Okay. And one of the important things to remember about this first book, Circular Evidence, was that it was co-written with Pat Delgado. And uh, Forrest right. already covered Colin's background. Pat was, at the time, in 1989, already a retired electromechanical design engineer who specifically worked designing electrochemical analytical instrumentation. So I right. just want to remind people, these aren't just your average Joes exploring crop circles. These are well-educated, intelligent engineer types that are doing this. Yes. In addition to that, one of the other prominent members who's not cited as an author in the book, but a prominent member of their little circle of research is Busty Taylor, who was a pilot, photographer, and also a crop circle enthusiast. And you'll hear his name come up a lot as we talk about these. I wanted to point out a few things about Pat Delgado, uh, Colin's partner with the first book. Uh, he passed away on May 23rd in 2009 after a bout with cancer. Colin points out in a uh, very nicely written memorial page to Pat that Pat had served with the British Armed Forces in World War II and was one of the soldiers who made it out in the evacuation of Dunkirk. So that's pretty cool. Additionally, Pat worked with NASA on a Mariner tracking station at Woomera, Australia, as well as other spacecraft to the moon and Venus. It's pretty fascinating. This station, we always talk about the movie contact because it, it there are some lessons there about how uh, when a ship on a deep space mission is uh, super far away, you need to be on the other side of the planet to communicate with it. So the U.S. is coordinating with Australia for those stations. And uh, this one is part of the Deep Space Network. Uh, this is from a website that NASA has. The Deep Space Network supports NASA and non-NASA missions that explore the furthest points of our solar system. The DSN has three ground stations located approximately 120 degrees apart on Earth. This is to ensure that any satellite in deep space is able to communicate with at least one station at all times. The ground right, stations right. also communicate with satellites in order to initiate course corrections, provide software updates, and alter the way scientific observations are made. Regarding Woomera, as part of the plan to develop three deep space stations equidistant around the world, the U.S. collaborated with Australia to construct the 26-meter, 85-foot antenna and Woomera. 
Woomera was chosen as the best location for Deep Space Station 41 because it is was about 120 degrees west of Goldstone, California, where another Deep Space Station was located. So anyway, this is really impressive stuff that Pat Delgado was involved in these long-range communications. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Pat and uh, Colin were lifelong close friends. Well, that that is an essential element to this story and the study of crop circles known as cereology, because these are cereal plants usually, but all kinds of plants can be formed into crop circles, even common grass. So the short story of how Colin Andrews joins forces with these other scientists is that in July of 1983, while he is an electrical engineer for the British government locally and regionally, he's traveling between offices near Winchester and Hampshire, and he looks over in a field that has a natural dip in it, which you could call a natural amphitheater. And he saw five circles forming a cross in a farmer's field. And this captured his imagination, not only just uh, with excitement about what is this, but he said it was palpable physically. Like he felt a strange feeling that he's felt later on when investigating crop circles that you don't feel in the fake ones. There's something drawing him to a lifelong research project and finding out what this was. And when he starts asking different farmers about what's going on here, people say, well, you know, there's other people asking. Uh, One of them is Pat Delgado, which you just mentioned. And another person that comes to investigate is Dr. Terrence Meaden. And according to the book, as far as 2003, he was and still is the head of the Tornado and Storm Research Organization in Great Britain. So at first, they thought perhaps this is some strange fluke of weather combined with natural elements, although very rare, that maybe like ball lightning, something's going on here that is causing this phenomenon. So that is why Dr. Meaden is studying this. And they all basically join forces, eventually meet Busty Taylor, who is a also a driving instructor and light aircraft pilot that lived in Collins' hometown. So these people all came together and it turned into an evolution of researching strange phenomena. Yes, and Dr. Meaden is also, according to his Wikipedia page, he is an author who writes on archaeoastronomy, mostly focusing on the megalithic sites of Avebury, Stonehenge, and the Drombig Stone Circle in Cork, Ireland. He is a retired physicist with doctoral degrees in physics from the University of Oxford and a master's degree in applied landscape archaeology, also from Oxford. These folks are the right people to be looking at this. As Colin Andrews would say over the course of his books and writing is that this is a calling. Something drew him. It's just that chance looking over into the field and pulling over to the side of the road and walking out there. The things that he could see and noticed, which also added to the mystery, was that uh, this was pristine and that there were no footprints leading to it. It was fresh and it was recent. And the stocks were bent over with swirly stalks laid down in a pattern. So this wasn't just a a bunch of tramping around that he could see, that there was organization to it, and it was graceful. And what he noticed was in the center of the circle, there were small nodules of dried soil, still dried and not crumbled. Uh, That's another thing. When you're making these circles, you can be tramping around. And under his foot, the soil is crumbled, and it powders. And it's not that way in the center. It's a different result depending on where I step. In the other parts of the circle, but in the center, it's not that way. So what's going on here? It's still small balls of soil. And the farmer he talked to in that field that day, he's told him he's had them for years. 
And then later, Colin finds out that it's widespread. And that information comes from another great source we're going to examine tonight and pull a lot of stuff from, and that is a documentary which I purchased way back when it was released. And there was a showing and theaters around for it, but I bought the DVD off the website. That should tell you how long ago that was. That would be 2003 around then. And it's called Crop Circles Quest for Truth from 2002, I think is when uh, it was released, directed by Academy Award-nominated documentary filmmaker William Gazeki. And it also features an interview with Colin Andrews. So he's throughout here and all the big players in the research field as well. Colin is everywhere if you're looking at crop circles. And he's a controversial figure in the crop circle research community because of his beliefs, which, and this is something that we've learned, and anyone who's listened to us these last five or six years knows this, there are always competing ideas and hypotheses when it comes to mysteries this large, and people have very strong opinions about them, and they can't always seem to come together. But it's my opinion that Colin's assessment of things lines up. It makes sense to me. The thoughts that he has about why these are formed and why they, what what are hoaxes and what aren't hoaxes, he seems to be very even keeled about it and takes a very, a very appropriate approach to the reality of them. Not letting things get out of hand with the mystical side of it, which, you know, it's easy to do. It's like, oh my gosh, all these things are happening. He believes in that part of it, but only when he sees the evidence of it. And he also will take a look at the reality of whether or not something is a hoax or how it's been created. I really like his approach to everything, and I like that he's an underlying anchor to the overall study of crop circles. Yeah, I also like his approach in it. It's even-keeled, it's rational, but also open-minded. He's considering all angles on this, mm-hmm. and it's it's also evolved over the years. Yes, and you can see it in his books. Yeah, yes. he's not shy about sharing that with everyone. And I will say before I forget... His path with this study is a lot like other people who have launched into study of paranormal subjects in that it changes your life, not always for the better. It's a little bit like Orfeo Angelucci, who became involved, you could say, with a paranormal UFO event, and that changed his life. And you have to weigh the consequences there in that are you willing to take the risks and suffer the detractors and the persecution that you're going to get? Because you believe that it is more important to let everyone know about this, no matter the consequences. And I think that's what's happened with Colin Andrews, and I admire him for that stance. It it takes a lot of bravery to do that and courage. And just quickly, for those of you who haven't been with us since the beginning, Orfeo Angelucci, that's from an episode, (laughs) uh, episode number 73 called Orfeo Angelucci, Secret of the Saucers. It came out in June 9th of 2017. You'll see it uh, still up in our back catalog wherever you find us. Right. The journey is the same, and it falls into that pattern, which is another reason I think this is worthy of study And it's remarkable. But here's another piece of info. I often confuse their names, but there is an author named Andrew Collins. Not Colin Andrews. Andrew Collins, who's also received some controversial flack. And he wrote Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, which is the book that we pulled a lot of our research for for that topic. Uh, Yes, that's another multi-part series. Episodes 108, (laughs) 109, and 110, posted in late May of 2018. Ah, very good. Well, as we're about to dive deeper into the characteristics and aspects of what crop circles are, real and fake, and then the history of crop circles, because it's that one's going to change your mind as well, perhaps, about just how recent this is, 
Let's discuss where the three main researchers got their start. And that, again, is that July afternoon in 1983, when Colin Andrews first sees his circle and then starts contacting and asking people, asking farmers, talking about it. And people say, hey, have you heard of this other guy, Pat Delgado? You should get in touch with him. And then that connects them with Dr. Terrence Meaden, who, as I said before, was the head of the Tornado and Storm Research Organization in Great Britain. And, of course, Pat Delgado was working at NASA and and tracking the Mariner Project. So these are guys with bona fides, you could say, in studying this phenomenon. An electrical engineer, a person very familiar with uh, storm weather, because that's one of the early ideas is that it was just a weird weather anomaly. And maybe that's what's causing the circles. And it wasn't just these three guys, okay? So from Colin Andrews' point of view, the modern research starts when he starts asking farmers, because that puts him in touch with other researchers here, the other two I just mentioned. And as he says in the book, Crop Circle's Signs of Contact, quote, almost every farmer whose door I knocked on in that area of southern England told me that their forefathers had these things on their land and that they all heard them spoken of when they were children. This was concrete evidence that crop circles had been around for at least 30 years. So at that point in the mid-80s, he's getting reports from farmers that their fathers, their forefathers, have told them that, yeah, we had those too, because they heard about them when they were kids. So now to show you how this was taken by government authorities, Colin Andrews goes on to say, I was then formally approached by a military person who asked me to supply technical and scientific reports the first reports about crop circles, to the Secretary of State for the Margaret Thatcher government. The reports were for a senior man in the cabinet, one of the top five people in Great Britain. The outcome of my three reports was that, in the mid-1980s, an announcement was made in the British House of Commons that they accepted that there was a real phenomenon. Their official position was that crop circles were an unusual phenomenon, but not any type of paranormal mystery. And this leads to the initial scientific theory about crop circles. So what we're saying is that the government took it seriously. They believed it was a real phenomena, not a hoax, but that there was a scientific explanation. Really? As the years go on with Andrew's research and others, here's another interesting statement that actually precedes this part in the book. And he says, this is after, of course, years of experience with this. I have also seen how intelligence agencies on either side of the water meaning Britain and U.S., have infiltrated the research organizations, and I have seen firsthand how they will pull you aboard, offer you money to write books on the subject, and all of it is simply to write you off and remove you from the scene. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That's what he's claiming is that, why would they care? Yeah. Well, it's a lot like the UFO uh, claims of government agencies, AFOC, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, all these other three-letter agencies, why are they dabbling in this? Why would they care to make this guy look foolish and offer him money? But circling back, at first, they thought it was a real phenomenon, the British government, but they didn't think it was paranormal. The initial scientific idea, as Andrew states, was, quote, a common theory was that they were being caused by a new kind of whirlwind, a new meteorological phenomena, one commonly referred to now as a plasma vortex a rotating field of electrified air, which during the night would account for the golden balls of light people claim to have seen above the fields in which crop circles appear. So, okay, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's possible. To me, like if I was told that by a 
government meteorologist. I would tend to believe that. Well, how does that happen? So uh, he says, I spoke to many of the leading meteorologists with whom we were working in Europe, and most of them found it hard to imagine that that kind of phenomena could cause even a single crop circle because of the well-defined cutoff edges and the lack of damage in crop circles. There was no evidence that that kind of plasma vortex could cause an effect of that kind. And he goes on to say, remember that Pat and I and our colleagues were all investigating crop circles before hoaxing became a part of the scene. Right. That's also what he's claiming is that their investigation, and Colin Andrews was all over the British media and television. You know, I'm sure they were playing the X-Files theme. Yeah. It was all over the place in the news and documentaries. And once word got out, that's when he says the hoax craze started. Yeah. And his book became a bestseller. Right. An international bestseller. But that was also a dilemma for him because they knew if they started speaking about this, that's going to let out the hoaxers. And from my perspective now, a lot of the hoaxers are just as interesting as the people that fully believe and believe nothing else, that these are genuine, let's say, extra-worldly communications. So it's an interesting phenomena and group of people that are interested in this and connected that essentially Pat and Colin predicted would happen, and it did. Because he said also that he, they saw the people problems rise up along with the evolution of the phenomena. We've covered a lot of unusual things over the years, and we've talked a lot about the possibility of hoaxes. And this is one of those circumstances that there's not a lot of the other legends that we've gone over present the opportunity for this kind of regular hoaxing, aside from possibly Bigfoot. But there's a lot of, <laughs> right. you know, a lot of effort has to go into that as well. If you're going to do a hoaxy Bigfoot situation, you've got to put right. a lot of work into it. And it's not confined to one geographical area. Mm -hmm. Not that crop circles are either, but everyone really focuses on Southern England when it comes to this. So it's interesting, the sociological components of this particular legend and yeah. Whether or not they were real or hoaxed from the get-go, which as we get into the history, you'll probably change your mind about that, no matter which side of the fence you're on. And the other idea is that, you know, I think it's obvious and all the researchers will say, no, it's they're hoaxing now they're, and the hoaxers are admitting it. They have websites up. We're hoaxers sure. and they're not necessarily saying which, they're still not saying which ones they did unless it's right. some kind of sanctioned thing for the media. Sure. They're keeping that close to their vest. But I just think it's fascinating because there also is, and, and we've touched on this before, whether it was yeah. with Amelia Earhart or other legends that have mm -hmm. a lot at stake, there's also these warring factions, for lack of a better descriptor. And people get really tribal about where they oh, come yeah. down on. And that can take place within the circle of the researchers. It can take place within the circle, circle, pun intended, the circle of the <laughs> hoaxers, right. Right. Uh, but then also on the opposite sides of the fence from the researchers and the hoaxers. Everybody has their decisions and opinions and, and feelings about it, whether they're fake or real, and if they're real, how they're made, and if they're fake, how they're made, and should you know how they're made, even if you're hoaxing them. And this one is one of the most socially complex legends I feel like we've ever encountered. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree on that. And what's interesting is, well, you know, you and I are both uh, students of human behavior. I, I love learning about the weird aspects of human behavior because we're all stuck on this rock together. We should probably know a little bit about each other and keep learning. But what's interesting here, when you talk about both sides of the fence, hoaxers and believers, I don't want to say true believers. I mean, there's certainly people who, they won't think that any crop circle is faked. 
But I think what either side did not realize, which I've come to learn over the course of our reading into this, is that they're a bit more, maybe a lot more, intertwined, like the stalks of grain, than they imagined with each other. Meaning, hoaxers are more connected and intertwined with believers, and vice versa, than they first imagined, I would say so. And we know that because of the statements from hoaxers themselves. Yeah. I can't wait to cover that because that's fascinating. These are people who are claiming like, yeah, we did it, but maybe I was compelled to. Yeah, there's it gets getting a little bit to that analogy that I know I've brought up on the show before with uh, Cincinnati Microwave, the company that makes both uh, radar guns <laughs> and radar detectors. Mm-hmm. And they just keep making each one better and the better and better. The bullets and the band-aids. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the bullets and the band-aids. <laughs> right. So there, and there's an idea that possibly something like that's going on here, except that instead of Cincinnati Microwave, it's yeah. some sort of omniscient force that's overseeing things. And yeah. in a way, both the researchers and the hoaxers are pawns in some game that is like we is so big you can't even recognize you're on the playing board. The bigger picture is that they were meant to work together. They were meant to be brought together to work together because that may be the bigger message. Well, I'm not jumping ahead here, but that may yeah. be the bigger message of all of this. And it's funny you say microwave because microwaves are possibly a thought of how these crop formations are patterned, let's say. Yes. Before we get into the definitions of what makes up a real and a fake crop circle by most accounts, there is a feeling that goes with it. And this also ties into what you just said. Perhaps this larger force at its very physical and real and palpable sense as a person walking into what has been considered a real and genuine crop circle there is a feeling that people get, that a lot of people have claimed, and then that's just the base of it, and then a lot of weird stuff has happened to them, as people have claimed. And it's not just the believers, the hoaxers have said there's a weird feeling about it. Not as much, of course. They're going to be more tempered with their exclamations of high strangeness, but I wanted to read this description from Colin Andrews about how he felt, about how he feels about the feeling of walking into a genuine crop circle that he does not get when it's hoax. And this is before you approach it. And look, all the listeners we have that have graciously emailed us and told us their stories about uh, something strange happening in a supernatural or paranormal way, and you feel it before it happens, it's a little bit like that. But this also goes into the description of what they are. So I thought this would be a good way to lead into that section here of the definitions and descriptions. So as Colin says... I have long referred to my crop circle research as a quest. The genesis of this feeling was the very moment back in 1983 when I saw the first set of five circles forming a traditional Celtic cross in a field. I have often said that it felt like a switch was thrown in my stomach. There was an overwhelming emotional and spiritual effect on me, but there was also a palpable physical effect as well. This was quite special and a feeling I have experienced many times throughout my decades of research. I was quite conscious of a sense of mystery, of awe, of something beyond our mortal ken. I can recall being overwhelmed upon first seeing the formation, and I also remember how this feeling grew inside me as I walked closer to the circles. The awe and wonder embraced me like a white light permeating every cell of my body. This powerful sense of mystery triggered a resolve in me to learn as much as I could about this phenomenon. It did, indeed, become a quest. It became a quest for understanding and for truth. 
so in addition to that description there of the that feeling that a lot of people get, which is just the start of these strange feelings of walking into what they call a genuine crop circle, there's a section in Colin's description in that part of the chapter here, chapter two, where he starts to describe the elements of what he considers a genuine crop circle. But at section 2.4 here, he continues with magic. And this is what I love because that's maybe the best description for this. He says, my fascination with crop circles is, in essence, at its core, a deep-rooted bewilderment. I continually marvel at the lack of human presence, and I revel in the magical atmosphere that exists when I visit these formations. The feeling is palpable. There is something elusive and thrilling at the sight of authentic formations. I really cannot define it, nor can I measure it. But it is there. A tangible sense of, well, magic might be the right word. What is remarkable about this feeling for me is that, outside of crop circles, I have only experienced this sense of awe in churches and cathedrals, special places where there is clearly an undercurrent of revelation. Sometimes, some of us seem to be capable of receiving transmissions from other places, other states of being, other dimensions. Many of us talk about intuition, hunches, that feeling that someone is watching us, or the knowledge that someone is talking about us. We seem to have a kind of sensory radar that sometimes allows us to pick up messages that speak to us without words. There is usually no rational explanation for these kinds of experiences. But I have personally felt this sense of awareness when visiting authentic crop formations, and it continues to fascinate me. I am constantly trying to learn more about it. So it's that magical feeling, that indescribable sense that you only get when you're physically there, like a lot of people have, that is uh, akin to visiting a haunted house. And you get that feeling of, of fear, something in the pit of your stomach that is ineffable. You can't relay that to people unless they experience for themselves. And as we've seen, once they do, they write us back and like, I never believed in any of this. And then this happened to me. Yeah, exactly. And now I want to visit a crop circle with you and me. And uh, I would love to. We get some gear. We get some video going. I want to feel that feeling. I think that would be a lot of fun, actually. If we could get over there during uh, one of the seasons, I would be very much into that. And, you know, there's been a changing of the guard. It's been going on so long now that uh, the even the research, even the hoaxing, too, is yeah. passing hands. So... It's evolving in lots of fascinating ways, and it's hard to know what the current state is because, to a certain extent, I would say that the world has a little bit lost interest in it, and it's so right. it's not it's not as big a headline these days. Yeah, but if it's still happening, especially the real ones are still happening, I I don't know if we should be ignoring it, even if it's just art by humans, and I believe some of them are, a lot of them, as we'll see, probably are. It's worth looking at. It's worth documenting and marveling at because it's an amazing feat to create one of these things and, and have it come off well. But it's amazing what you can make out of found natural things that is just an augmentation of the natural beauty already around us. Indeed. I'm Devin Fisher, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So, Scott, tell us all, what are crop circles? Well, and we're looking at a couple of books that Colin has authored or co-authored. This one is, again, Crop Circles, Signs of Contact, which was published in 2003. And there's a couple of sections here I wanted to read because when we're talking about the definition of crop circles, since he coined the phrase, it seems correct to 
see what he thinks those definitions are. Oh, even before we get to Wikipedia and yeah. what they have to say. <laughs> yeah, what they okay. have to say. In his book, on page 37 from Crop Circle Signs of Contact, we have the following two quick paragraphs that describe what a crop circle is. Crop circles are circular shapes usually found in cereal crops in which the vegetation is bent over at right angles and spiraled into an often complex pattern. Authentic crop circles show no damage to the plants, unlike hoaxed circles in which the stalks are broken and crushed. In authentic crop circles, the plants are gently bent over yet continue to grow. The plants in faked circles are often killed by the, quote, circle makers, end quote. And there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's people that will break into factions about just that simple paragraph and how much is broken, how much isn't broken in a hoax and a real one and all of that. Just So mm-hmm. just keep in mind that there's a lot of disagreements here, but we find Colin's approach very measured. Initially, in the early years of the 20th century manifestations of this phenomenon, the shapes were nothing more than simple circles. In later years, the patterns actually became much more complex and have consisted of combinations of complex geometric designs, including straight lines, spirals, angles, and other clearly discernible and recognizable patterns. So that's his definition of a crop circle that explains what they are, which a lot of people already know. This is like a high publicity trial. I don't know how you would find a jury that doesn't know what a crop circle is. (laughs) Well, no, I I will clarify that, Your Honor. People (laughs) will have an idea of one type or just think it's just a circle and not know that there are very complex mathematical designs being employed. Yes. Fractals, sacred geometry, it gets very complex. And so when people say that, it's like, well, yeah, it's just circles, right? No. That, yeah. that was my Neil deGrasse Tyson in the uh, master class. No. <laughs> well, and that's the, you know, that's the interesting thing is that in the early days, they were just circles. So then there's the whole thing about well, the evolution of complexity. Is that relating to hoaxes or is that relating to us being ready for a more complex message? Right. We start off all with baby steps. That's right. And two plus two equals four. Well, in 1991, according to that same book, there were over 700 circles. And keeping in mind, it was published in 2003. But Colin says the average per year is around 200. And again, that's as of when that book was published. I'm not sure if those averages have gone up. But the other thing that he talks about is that it's a sign of obvious intelligence. And again, here's a section that I think is interesting. It's clear to me that the evidence is growing exponentially that whatever or whomever is involved in the creation of the genuine crop circles around the world has a collective mind. There seems to be a consciousness at the very source of the formations, and it is obvious that there is thought involved. Where or what that source is at this moment in our history and in the history of the phenomenon is very difficult to ascertain. However, I believe that we are all involved in a process, the final goal of which is a complete understanding of precisely what is going on. So that's his point of view there, right. and what, which I think is pretty interesting. What's also great in this book is there's a Q&A at the back of it and for frequently asked questions or the fact. Under number two, aren't all crop circles man-made? He reiterates that point in that he believes before his book came out and they started the research in 1989 with the publication of Circular Evidence that there were very few crop circles being made by people. As the subject grew in popularity and crop circles received more and more publicity over the years, they believe the counterfeits really skyrocketed. But as you said here, he says, I believe very strongly, however, that the man-made factor is important and must not be ignored or cavalierly dismissed. All activity in the fields, regardless of its source, should be fully researched. That being said, I I again state with certainty that the truth would be revealed much sooner if hoaxing ceased immediately. So 
it doesn't help, but it's also part of the aspect that he's accepted. That's part of this human experience that we're going through. Yeah, and like something we said before, and he's alluded to, and we'll talk about in his latest book, The Edge of Reality, more in part two, but there's an implication here that even the hoaxers don't understand the influences that they might right. be under when they make choices to actually create a circle. And I know that's right. far out, but stick with us on it. It's, <laughs> it is, I find myself going, this is crazy, but it's fascinating. So we're going to we're gonna cover it. That's that's what we do here. <laughs> yeah. So I think you were going to talk a little bit about the stocks and what, what happens yeah in the actual crops as the authentic circles are made? Well, there's two things to look at here. Things that are above the ground that are obvious you can see with your eyes and examine when you're in the field looking, standing in the crop circle, looking at it. And there's stuff below the ground, the soil composition, weird things that happen, genetic mutations, possibly with the grain itself and the seeds and the germination of the seeds that uh, came from plants and stalks within the circle. But let's talk about the stocks themselves, because that is one of the main things that people differentiate between real and fake. Now, what I will say here, starting off, is that I do believe personally that all the characteristics that you see within a genuine crop circle that you can see could also possibly be done by human hands. For instance, one of the main things that they say in a genuine crop circle and the stocks of grain and plants that are found in it is that some of them will have a bend at 90 degrees near where they meet the soil. And this is hard to determine because it gets so messy about what's authentic, what's not, what's been declared uh, an original or organic as opposed to a hoaxed crop circle, is that it's not all just 90 degree bends. There might be a bunch of them. There might be some of them within a real authentic circle. Some might be broken as well. But what you can tell, I believe, is that a hoaxer will usually have to have a mechanical means of bending down the stalks of cereal grains. Any kind of uh, plant with a stalk, of course, that rises up. Corn, uh, sometimes these are known as corn circles. So any plant with a stalk, that has to be bent mechanically. So that's what Colin is saying, is that if you look at a faked, hoaxed one, most of the stocks will be broken. Probably all, I would say. That's my logical thinking, is that they got to break them somehow. Now, there's some hoaxers that will say like, well, if you get the grains when they're young, the shoots, you bend them over, well, they'll grow back into a shape or they're much more pliable. But these things don't take weeks to grow back. These things appear within a few days or a day or two or the same day they're usually discovered. And they last for a couple of weeks until the farmer plows them under or, or harvests the grain. So they don't have time to grow back in from young shoots into this shape. So right. I think that's been debunked. But the weird thing is that, yeah, they don't all totally display the same characteristics, but in an authentic crop circle, what you'll see, and this is what Colin describes, is that the way the stalks are laid down. Now, the, the hoaxers will say, like, well, we can get with our boards and rope, you know, we're just stomping them down, holding the board under your foot with having two ropes on either side of the board, and you're holding onto those, and that's what you're doing. You're just advancing in a circular pattern. You can get that circular sweep pattern that they claim real circles do. That's true. But in the authentic ones, what many researchers claim is that the stalks are often laid down in very complex braiding patterns, meaning they fall one after the other like they're woven in a basket. When you get to the intersections of where designs meet, different shapes within the crop circle, there is a weaving pattern from one area to another. And when you look at them from the air, you see an aerial photograph, and oh my gosh, this all would have been so much easier in the days of drones. 
But this was before all that, of course. Yeah. You had helicopters, <laughs> you had planes. That's or a very tall ladder. Sometimes they, they tried to get up as high as they could in a field. But this would have been so much easier to document with drones. But when you look at them from the air, most of the time, I would say, when you see real crop circles that are considered genuine and authentic, they look pristine. The edges are sharp. The patterns are crisp. The geometric designs are much more complex than usually the ones you see being attributed to hoaxers. Their lines are a little messy. It's kind of, it made me think of, remember the first Star Trek movie? Oh, yeah. And I remember being a kid, you saw that in the theater, like, wow, this is so cool. I mean, yes, we had Star Wars and rotoscoping, and right. that was cool. Yeah. But I think it was Star Trek when you saw the, the ships moving around, and it looked so great. And now when you look at it, there's a little thin blue line around everything. But to be fair, those were not obvious in the theater. That was a result of no. transferring to Laserdisc. <laughs> That, well, DVD. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what I'm saying. When in yeah. a theater, we were you blown away. It. You, you, yeah, you couldn't it was see so the cool. mat lines in the theater. There was a contrast thing that happened when you, when yeah. you put it on video. Yeah, It's a lot about perspective and where you are when you're looking at it. So with these crop circles, when you look at them from the air, the lines are very sharp. The designs are, uh, some of them are just mind-blowingly complex. Now, here's the thing. Humans can think of this stuff. We can design things like that. We have artists who can make incredible designs, fractals. All these different shapes, the sacred geometry that you see. But to do it under the parameters of which they are found, to me, starts to become more impossible if you consider a human element in that the short amount of time that they're found, the short amount of time that a large group of people would have had to do this and weave the stocks together to get that pattern to fake it like that. Now, this also should be said, some experts like Pat Delgado was fooled when he was asked to authenticate a crop circle that was found. And I think he said, yes, this looks authentic to me. And they said, nope, it was hoaxed. So experts can be fooled. It does not also logically discount all the other ones that have been thought to have been genuine. So that is one characteristic. Usually when you see a faked one, the edges are not crisp because you have people doing mechanical smashing of yeah. these reeds and they don't take the time to braid them and weave them together like basket weave. Right. That's the other freaky thing. And so, yes, a lot of the stocks are bent at 90 degrees, but not all. I think they uh, will find broken ones in authentic, quote-unquote, crop circles, and also more broken ones, of course, or mostly all probably broken in the faked, hoaxed circles. Yeah, and here's another thing that Colin talks about in some of the ones that they came across that were considered authentic. There seems to be a varying degree of force that's applied in the creation mm -hmm. of the authentic circles, right. and that sometimes it'll be so great that there will be individual stalks that are completely uprooted and are laying on top of the still standing crop next to yeah. the circle. With soil, like a root, little root and soil still on the root. Yeah, exactly. So the soil is another part of that, is that when you go to look at what's been faked, obviously people have to step on the ground. Now, they do use some ladders to get over some uh, sections so they can show or you get the impression that no one has trodden the ground, traipsed over it. But you don't do it for everything. Plus, it also takes a lot more time to, to employ those kind of things in the dark if you do them overnight. So one of the theories is that how these stocks are bent, and again, this goes back to my saying that I believe humans could do this. You could steam a stock of grain, especially when they're young and green, to get it to bend to 90 degrees and give that impression. But are you going to do it overnight to all of them in a certain pattern? Right. Or do you have a machine that does that? Is there some type of top secret governmental experiment, black on black technology that can do this? Maybe there is. But why would you bother with this stuff to do that? 
to make essentially an art installation in somebody's field. So you have to look at all these parameters. But talking about the soil, generally at the center, what he found when he walked into the first set of five circles is that at the very circle is a patch of bare dirt that is untouched. So that's one of the things also that Colin Andrews noticed in July of 1983 when he was traveling in between his government offices. And this is near Winchester in Hampshire. And he looks over and he sees that, uh, I guess it would be a Roman or Britain natural amphitheater that was used, uh, a natural depression in the land. And he saw those five circles come together to form a Celtic cross. What he noticed when he walked out there was it's pristine. There were no footprints leading to it. You'll see other crop circles that are near the harvester tram lines yes. that you'll see in fields in England. That's a lot of the times how people are getting out to the site to plant that and leave no footprints as they walk the tram lines. However, there's a lot of authentic considered crop circles that are not next to tram lines with no footprints leading in. Yes. And to be clear about this, I didn't really understand what a tram line was until we started looking into this, but essentially it's the tire track in the field that allows the harvesters and they try to stay inside those to do the least amount of damage as they're doing yeah. work in the fields. And another thing that's very important to note is that in the seventies, when the circles first started appearing, there was a lot less spraying and driving through the fields going on. So the tram lines, right. a lot of times either weren't there at all, or they were non-existent or very, very thin. And it would be difficult to walk through them without disturbing them late at night because in a lot of cases, they didn't ha they didn't even have them uh, because they weren't spraying crops back then. Right. So that's how people have to physically walk out there. Nobody's levitating to get out to the middle of a field. Right. Here's another aspect of it. People say, which points to a hoax, is that they're often near roads, so it's easier and shorter for people to walk out there. But not in every case. Doesn't explain everything. Also, if you're near the road there's more likelihood of you being seen by people driving by. That's right. There are rural areas, but they're a lot more compact. There's people driving by on occasion. There's the farmer who patrols their fields and is actively tending to the fields every day. So that's usually the first people who notice it. And then they notify people like Colin to come out and investigate. Well, I was talking about the center of the circle. There are small nodules of dried soil. This is what he found in his first crop circle. This dried soil was still pristine, dried, not crumbled. Under his foot, the soil is crumbled and it crumbles to powder, but in the center, it's not. There are these still small balls of soil that are untouched. So that's another significant thing that if you were to fake a crop circle, you have to start in the center, work your way out. Now you could probably step around that or fake that somehow. So again, it gets to the point where I think a lot of this could be uh, faked. Yes, you could possibly bend these stalks somehow using steam or some device and get it to do that. But can you do that overnight with maybe a team of even 15 or 20 people? You also have to haul all the gear out there and back and work in the dark. Down tram lines, generally, yeah. Hoaxers will say, well, actually, when you're out in the dark and it's a moonlit night or there's enough light to see, uh, your eyes adjust and you'll be able to do okay without using a bunch of flashlights. And also... When you're near people in the field, your vision, they can kind of disappear from sight in a way. And so it's possible that people driving on the road may not see you if you're only like maybe 30 yards in. All these things are possible. But again, that equation of what's more probable, what's more impossible when you have these appearing in a short period of time, also appearing in the daytime, in broad daylight, under people's noses in a way, and that they will pop up in an area where people had just inspected and have taken video of. They come back an hour later, end of the day, boom, there's one already gone up and nobody saw anybody do it. 
So it doesn't explain everything. But anyway, that gets back to the stocks. That gets back to the way they're laid down, usually in a swirling pattern. The other thing I will say is what adds to the beauty, I think, of the aerial shots of the ones that are considered authentic is that there's a sheen to them that you don't often get with the fake ones. There's something about it when it's perfectly laid down in a swirling pattern and it flows and it's braided. They kind of have a sheen or a glow to them. Yeah, it's almost like a moray effect. Exactly. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah, because of the they're they're so perfectly parallel and they're reflecting the light in geometrically perfect ways. Exactly. So yeah. those are some of the uh, principles and elements of the real versus the fake. Now, I found in the back of the book that you may not have found because, we, again, we got uh, mistakenly different books here, but he does uh, have a few Q&As and he gives brief, concise answers. So I think I'll go over those because those are frequently asked questions put to him. And this is to Colin Andrews again. That is Crop Circle's Signs of Contact, also co-written by Stephen J. Spignese. And uh, he's got uh, 15 questions here, but the first six or so really answer a lot of questions we would have in part one for a lot of listeners. So in addition to what you said earlier about just what are they, well, they're geometric designs, and it could be in cereal crops uh, such as wheat, oats, oilseed rape, which is canola. Something that's interesting, I saw in a doc uh, by one of the farmers, like that would be a horrible crop to go traipsing out into. It stinks. You get yellow pollen, I think, all over yourself. It's sticky. It's just, you know, it'd be horrible. But hoaxers claim that they've done some in uh, oil rape seed fields as well as authentic ones. So Colin Andrews goes on to say, uh, in the past 13 years, more complex patterns have appeared, which include straight lines, appendages, and extensions in various shapes and repetitive geometric patterns. And the word pictogram is often used to describe these agroglyphs. I love that too. Agroglyph. I just now learned that term, <laughs> which I, I just overlooked apparently in all these other readings. Well, people ask where are they found mostly? Well, uh, the majority of crop circles, both historically and currently, are in England, with a high concentration of formations in southern central England and around a lot of the sacred sites like Stonehenge, Avebury, Winchester, and the name of a town, uh, which is perhaps now my favorite, other than Warminster thing, <laughs> which also ties into this as well. Yeah. The town of Cheesefoot. Yes, there's Cheesefoot, Cheesefoot Head, there's uh, the Devil's <laughs> right. Punch Bowl. There's a lot of really great names here. Yeah. <laughs> which, two great things that come together, not exactly like chocolate and peanut butter, but cheese and feet. <laughs> mm, delicious. <laughs> so there are hot spots, of course, including Germany, the United States, Canada, the Netherlands, so they've appeared in dozens of countries all over the world. But in England, typically around these sacred sites, and Colin Andrews and I as well believe that there is something significant about that. There's a reason for that. Yeah, it's actually, and I've got some notes here from uh, one of the several documentaries we watched, Canada, Brazil, Germany, Italy, Austria, Spain, Serbia, Czech Republic, Belgium, Russia, Sweden, Croatia, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> Denmark. It was very sacred to me too, yes. Denmark, Ohio, the Netherlands, Finland, Slovenia, Poland, Norway. However, the overwhelming majority are Southern England. This documentary says now there's up to 300 a year. A lot of them are, are in Wiltshire or uh, fairly close to Stonehenge. But And there's over 40 countries that they've turned up in now. So that is pretty fascinating. That's a lot of places. But getting back to the sacred sites... 
Colin actually posited, and he and his colleagues have noted this since 1985, they do seem to cluster around sacred sites, including Stonehenge, Avebury, Silbury Hill, and others. Now, additionally, he points out that ongoing research regarding that has also shown a connection between their locations and underground water reservoirs. And notably, the sacred locations generally all have circular archaeological sites associated with them, like Stonehenge. And they noticed this, too, that after Busty Taylor pointed it out, the and Busty is the pilot that was uh, part of their original research team and uh, did a lot of uh, flying and, and aerial photography for them, that dimensions from the earliest simple circles, before it was all big news and all over the world, those dimensions of those circles that were recorded by them matched the geometric relationship of the components of Stonehenge within centimeters. In many cases, okay, that is a representation of sacred geometry, which you know we can oh. we can really go more into in part two. But yeah, that is one of the most fascinating things about this. Now there are things called crop marks, not crop circles, crop marks, which is a phenomenon of archaeological remains under the ground of ancient peoples causing crop marks and fields in the shapes of circles and squares. But here's the thing: they don't pop up overnight. And every year they come up in the same place, always. And here's another factoid from the wiki entry. Nearly half of all crop circles found in the UK in 2003 were located within a 15-kilometer radius of the Avebury stone circles. Right. One of the things researcher Nancy Talbot points out is when you're talking about these clusters and looking at central southern England, they're thinking that most of these happen over a water table, an underground aquifer. And what happens is that when the rains start to subside over the summers, it gets more hot, the water table lowers down over these, what they call uh, green soil and the chalk in the soil where these aquifers reside. As that water table lowers around the edges, there is more electrical energy generated by the water percolating through this chalk. And that's where you find these, uh, it's like a bathtub ring, of crop circles, you right. could say, right. as the water subsides. That's one possible theory. They're not totally certain. And there's a little bit of controversy with these findings. But, but it seems logical to me that these clusters appear in the outlines of these underground aquifers and water tables. So that's one possible thinking on that. Right. So yeah, Scott, you're absolutely right. They have appeared in dozens of countries all over the world. And according to Nancy Talbot of the BLT research team, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, more so in part two as well, uh, who we just mentioned here, uh, she states in the documentary, Crop Circles Quest for Truth, that they had started testing probably by the late 90s, at least 350 to 400 crop circle samples from all over the world, eight or nine different countries. Like you just said, Australia, Israel, Canada, the US, Germany, Netherlands, and they've done multiple different samples in multiple different crops in 10 years' time. So a good sample, but we'll see, is that data trustworthy? This is David Dickinson, and when I'm not hunting thylacines in the Aussie bush, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, what kind of vegetation are crop circles found in? Getting back to the frequently asked questions section of Colin's book here, crop circles are found in the whole range of cereal crops, with a vast majority found in barley and wheat. They also appear in oats and many other forms of vegetation, including canola, called oil rapeseed in the United Kingdom, long grass, corn, tobacco, and rice. 
and there have been a few reports of crop circles in vegetable crops, especially spinach and potatoes. Hmm. Crop formations have been also found in groves of small trees. That's interesting. I know there's a case for a fact that it was in Japan uh, that has been spotted by satellite, but that was a uh, well-defined exper- government experiment, I think. Right, right. But people were, of course, clamoring over it, and it became clickbait and everything, because from the sky, it looked like a crop circle in an old-growth forest or with yeah. two circles right next to each other. But that one was oh. planned. Just for the record. Right. Fascinating. Well, in the documentary, I remember uh, Busty Taylor Mm -hmm. has a sample and that he said was from a cabbage stem plant. So, yes. And what he shows is that it is naturally bent at a gentle 90 degree angle with no breaks in it. So that's a little strange, but that's the one he produces. So that's from a cabbage plant. Well, is there a particular time of the year that crop circles appear? So as we said, in the Northern Hemisphere, crop circles appear from late April until early September. And this coincides with the period of the growing season when the vegetation has grown in excess of three inches in height. So you need you need some nap there to be able to work with. Right. But as we said in the, I think the first part of uh, when we started this off, Stephen J. Spinisi claims that he asked for a crop circle to be formed and saw one in the grass outside of his condominium. So it can be in anything, really. Yeah, and there was someone else in one of the two documentaries said something similar. It was a woman, I can't remember now who she was, but she had said Mm -hmm. that she was meditating on it and saw one outside of her house, which remember, did you remember that from one of, and she was like, I didn't take a picture of it because it was just for me. You know, right. and I'm sure people are rolling their eyes and going, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it. that was never there. Right. We hear you on this. Just We're just reporting all angles of it because that's what we do. Yeah. So The aspect I think that's significant with these is that people claim that there's an interactive element to this, like a lot of other paranormal things we report on. Yes. A lot of people ask this, question six, how can you tell when a crop circle is real? Now, keep in mind, uh, this is going to be answers from 2003 in Colin Andrews' book. And that may have changed over the years in the next decade here. Well, as he says, these days, identifying genuine formations by physical inspection alone is becoming increasingly difficult and often requires scientific equipment and testing to confirm authenticity. In the 1980s, crop circles rarely drew visitors, and thus no damage was done to the site after initial discovery. It is a different situation today. In addition to a site being compromised by tourists tramping around through fields, many formations that are initially thought to be genuine are, in fact, counterfeits. This is due in large part to hoaxers applying to their fakes the characteristics researchers recorded and reported in the early years of the phenomenon. So, of course, they're getting smart. They're, they're, you know, they want to be thought of as being authentic and real. And the more real you are, the bigger the glory yeah. Of your fakery. Yeah. So, well, he goes on. That being said, there are certain key signature characteristics that can be looked for when trying to identify a real circle. If the following are found in the crop circle, the formation is probably authentic. Here are some uh, bullet points to go over again, because again, these might change by the time we get to part two. So the first bullet point is there are no tracks into the circle, meaning from the edge of the road or wherever people are usually walking or can access, there are no visible tracks getting out to the crop circle itself. Secondly, there are no signs of interference with the soil or the plants at points in the circle where hoaxers would have to have stood to create the formation. The plants are not damaged. The plants are more vibrant in appearance, and the root structure is more extensive than usual. Okay, now it's getting strange here. Yeah. 
The swirl symmetry is even, and there is usually two or fewer rotations of the spiral vein of the circle before it strikes the standing wall of the circle's circumference. So that's another thing we've noticed, is that the swirl will go one way, and then it goes the opposite way. And sometimes it's clockwise, and then the outer ring meshing and weaving into the standing crop at the edge will be going the other direction, which shows complexity. Right. And if you're faking, it's a, it's a lot more time to fiddle around with that stuff to make it look weird than it would be just with your board to tramp in one direction to get a spiral. And here, it starts to get even stranger. There are magnetic and electrostatic anomalies in the formation, and compass rotation occurs when inside the circle. The plants are changed at the cellular level. Small quantities of an unknown magnetic material are found in the crop circle soil and impregnated into the plant tissue. A magnetic profile, as registered on a magnetometer, mimics the actual design of the crop circle. Isn't that something? Yeah. The profile of the electrostatic field found in the crop circle shows unusual patterning. The features that have been associated with the real crop circles, uh, but have in the last 20 years, been perfected by those making counterfeits include, so these are counterfeit techniques here, uh, very precise geometries made without obvious mistakes, well-formed cutoff lines around the circle or pattern. Now, the next part that he's going to talk about are techniques used by hoaxers that have been perfected, that you used to be able to tell a fake from a real one, but now they've gotten a lot better at that. So one of those is very precise geometries made without obvious mistakes, well-formed cutoff lines around the circle or pattern. The plants involved are bent over evenly during the early stages of growth. In later stages, though, the plants are broken. This bending but not breaking feature has not been successfully hoaxed in oilseed rape canola plants. Some impressive spiral veins have been reproduced. It should be kept in mind that all of these features have not been achieved with some evidence of human involvement, and this is another way researchers can distinguish counterfeits from the authentic formations. So as I said before, yes, when the plants are young, they're a little springier, but as the plants get older, they do remain broken, but you may be able to attain some bending with young shoots. Uh, so again, there's, there's a lot of different factors that have changed over the years with the techniques of the counterfeiters. And what we know from people who have studied them now for a decade at this point. So that's just a, a good overview of what to keep in mind when you consider authenticity of a crop circle. But has that changed by the time we'll get to part two? Well, let's take a look at another factor here, which is the history of crop circles, which points to whether this is just some fad of the 80s and 90s. Or did this go back centuries, maybe thousands of years? Well, there's been a lot of interesting developments here when you go back to looking at how long crop circles have been around. And of course, the farther back you go, the more difficult it is to make a connection between a report and whether or not it might have been a crop circle, because you're faced with the filters of society and culture at the time and how they might react to finding something, just like everybody reacts differently now. And a hundred years from now, we might know that certain crop circles were created by some specific microwave source that is all figured out. And then they will laugh about all the speculation we're doing here in 2021. So there's a lot of difficult connections to make, but there's also a lot of researchers and historians who have made an attempt to determine when some of the earliest ones had happened. 
One of the interesting ones I found is one from the year 815. And it, there's just a billion sources and websites for all mm -hmm. this stuff. We're randomly plucking some of it from different places. So bear with us on these links. This one actually came from alienufoblog.com uh, from an article posted December 24th, 2020, relatively recently. 815 AD, this is from Church Records. In the year 815, a report from the Bishop of Lyon in France warns an incoming priest that the locals are involved in devil worship. Their crime? They were gathering seeds from a crop circle. The assumption must have been the crop circles were the result of the devil himself. They're gathering seeds in a flattened circle of the crops and using them in fertility rituals. Bishop of Lyon. Mm. While it wasn't uncommon for a church to accuse parishioners of devil worship, it seems surprisingly common for crop circles to exist, considering there was little concern about them in the report. The report was more concerned with what people were doing with them and whether or not they were worshiping the devil. So that's the year 815. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, and the story there is not the circle itself, but what they're doing with the results of the circle. The circle itself was not all that unusual, maybe. They were used to that. But the second part of this is that they may have thought that there was something magical about it and using the seeds specifically for rituals. Yes. Had some, had some power to it. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Then there's another one. This is one of my favorites. And this one gets cited in everyone's book about crop circles, every web page, every blog entry. They all go back to the story from Robert Plott a professor of chemistry. <laughs> this is from 1590. Yeah. Uh, he was connected with the University of Oxford. What I found here, and I love this, this is one of the fun things that we get to do on the show, is to go back. We go back, if we can, and find the actual source stories. And then we take a look at them in their original printing and condition and try to determine how accurate the distillations have been. Because People make mistakes, and um, everyone, like I said, Colin Andrews, all these folks have taken this story and distilled it down. But for us, we like to tell the whole story. So this book happens to be published in 1686, almost 100 years after the event took place, so that's something to note. The Natural History of Staffordshire by Robert Plott, keeper of the Ashmolean Museum, and professor mm. of chemistry in the University of Oxford. You know where that name came up before, Ashmole, Ashmolean? Yeah. yeah. I believe they house the black obsidian scrying mirror of John D. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, well, yeah, that's, that's why you're here. Yeah. You remember all the weird stuff. <laughs> Just weird stuff with that. no meaning. Yeah, yes. no, no, that does have meaning. Everything is connected. Um, <laughs> here's what I wanted to do. Because a lot of people have summarized this particular story, and they said, well, this is one of the real... Because the, the one from 815, it's a little bit, well, was there a crop circle? We're not really sure. And there's other early ones that are the same feeling. But this particular one, people reference it a lot. But there are some details that are left out of it that I found actually kind of entertaining. So the thing about this book from 1686 is that it's written in Old English and there's um, some unusual phrasing in it. So I have taken mm. it upon myself with no expertise whatsoever or any kind of uh, education in this mm -hmm. to try and phrase it in a way that makes sense. So I looked up words that I didn't understand and changed yeah. them to things that made more modern sense um, okay. when I could. There was one that I couldn't find. So we'll get mm. to that in a minute. But I just want to read this. I think, what, 1686, that's public domain, right? So uh, I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> Unless it's the ghost of the uh, the vertical plane dude. All right. So here we go. Chapter yeah. one, page 11, translated from Old English by yours truly. So not to be trusted. Scholarly. But to come close to the business, let us return again to the foresighted Remigius, who was a judge in Lorraine and perhaps the best skilled in matters of this nature that the world has yet known. 
having had the examinations, confessions, and condemnations of no less than 900 wizards and witches in 15 years' time, to our present purpose. On the 8th of August, 1590, one Nicolaia Lang-Bernhard, having been grinding grain on a handmill not far from Asinon-Cour in northeastern France, and returning about noon as she walked by a hedgefield, saw in an adjoining field an assembly of men and women dancing in a ring, but in a quite different manner from the usual practice of others, with their backs turned upon each other. She watched them for some time with great attention and saw that some of them had cloven feet like oxen and goats, which astonished her. And almost dead with fear and calling upon Jesus to help her well home, they forthwith all vanished except one Petter Grosspetter, whom quickly she saw vanished up into the air, letting his Malkin, which is, that's M-A-U-L-K-I-N, that's the one Mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out what it was. Apparently it's a Mm -hmm. stick for cleaning ovens. But uh, when he popped up into the air, I guess he dropped this thing, uh, he let it fell, and the wind from this event hit her so hard that it almost took her breath. After she got home, she was kept to her bed for no less than three days. The fame of the matter being quickly spread by herself and relations through the whole village, this petter at first brought an action of slander against Nicolaia. But knowing his own guilt and fearing to proceed too far, he desisted. Which, breeding suspicion in the judge, upon inquiry into his life and manners, he was at length apprehended and at last freely confessed the whole matter and revealed his companions as Barbelia, the wife of Johannes Latimus, Maeta, the wife of Lawrence Supermajor, which is a great name right there, Supermajor, <laughs> yeah. both which, though examined individually, confessed that they had danced with Petter and the cloven-footed creatures. Early police interrogation techniques, they took them and separately <laughs> asked them, who were you well, dancing with in the field? Did they have cloven right. feet? They both right. said yes. And for the further evidence of the business, John Michael, a shepherd, did also confess that while they danced, he played his crooked staff, pretending it was a pipe, sitting on a high oak branch, but that as soon as Nicolaia called out to Jesus, he tumbled headlong to the ground, but was immediately snatched up by a whirlwind, which carried him to Wyler Meadows, where he had left his herds a bit earlier. Hmm. Additionally, the place was found where they had danced, and it was a round circle. There were footprints of cloven feet plain to see, just as horses would leave in a ring, and this was testified to by Nickel Klein, Desiderius Vervex, another really outstanding name, Gasper <laughs> Suter, and several others that had been to see it. The judge witnessed the footprints and circle himself. The circle remained from the day after Nicolaia had discovered the business until the next winter when the plow cut it out. So... Again, this is almost 100 years after this supposedly happened. Let's keep in mind that this judge is an expert because he heard the confessions and condemnations of 900 wizards and witches in the preceding 15 years. It's not a bad record. That's a lot of work. (laughs) Loftus Hall, echoes of Loftus Hall, which would be, uh, geez, when was that? 1600s, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, I should remember that, but there's so many dates. uh, But always with the same tropes here, the cloven hooves, the staff is significant, uh, makes me think of a witch's broom. There's a lot of elements here, but they are 
possibly explaining something that was commonly believed to be always the work of the devil. 1766, Loftus Hall. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So a while later. Yeah. And you still have uh, Clovenhoof stories. A lot of people allude to this story and they leave out a lot of these details. They, I mean, Mm -hmm. they do, sometimes they throw in the fact that there was Clovenhoof. So other times they say, there was a crop circle in 1590. And it's like, well, there's a whole lot more to this particular story. This was a freaking party, all right? (laughs) And there's something strange going on out there. But it is interesting, the whirlwinds. The whirlwind picked the one uh, shepherd up and took him back to his field. And what is this whirlwind that they talk about? That's unusual. Mm -hmm. And there's other folks that say, well, there were hoof prints in there, and it could have been from any sort of livestock that was in the round area. Right, but right. Uh, that one is sometimes cited as an early example of mm-hmm. a crop circle. Well, the world was a lot more magical back then. Uh, on the other hand, it is now. We just have different terms for things and understanding, but weird stuff, magical stuff still happens, like tonight's topic, possibly. The other thing that you can't talk about, and I think you may have already alluded to it once, is the pamphlet that came out in yeah. 1678, The Mowing Devil or Strange News Out of Hertfordshire. Right. right. Yeah, this, this was an English woodcut pamphlet. This is from Wikipedia, published 1678. It tells of a farmer who, refusing to pay the price demanded by a laborer to mow his field, swore he would rather the devil mowed it instead. According to the pamphlet, that night his field appeared to be in flame. The next morning he found it to be perfectly mowed, that no mortal man was able to do the like. Apparently, there are folks that point to this, especially when you look at the pamphlet and the cover of it. It's a famous image. Anybody that's ever looked at anything about crop circles is one of the first things yeah. that comes up, and we have it in our right. show notes and in our gallery there. There are a lot of people that cite it, but there's other people that say, well, no, it was cut. It was described as being perfectly cut, mm-hmm. not laying down. So it, when you look at the image, it looks like a crop circle in terms of things laying down. But the description of how it was cut would preclude it from being one by the modern definitions. So, Well, if, if it was mysteriously cut down, that's even more magical to me. Yeah, yeah. That's the unusual thing there. There is a book, which we've made reference to, called The Secret History of Crop Circles, Recording the Phenomenon in Days of Old by Terry Wilson, which actually has a bit of the woodcut of the mowing devil right on the cover. But inside... There are 300 in the in the most recent edition, which was revised and republished in 2015. There are 312 examples of crop circles that predate 1980. And he just goes through and he's investigated a bunch of them. It's a very fascinating read. We'll have a link to that as well. And I'll make some reference to some of the cases from Terry Wilson's book. But also, here's another one from a blog, ufoinsight.com slash conspiracy slash unexplained slash crop circles. A slash ET. And it, this is an interesting posting here. This was published on August 30th at that particular blog by Oliver Grant. I just want to read a little section of it here. For a start, they've discovered that crop circles turned up way, way before the 1970s, as far back as 1686. That's a reference to uh, Robert Plot. And again, mm-hmm. that actual story took place in 1590. 1686 was when it was published. Again, he also mentions, that's the one I just read to you guys, but he also mentions a couple of centuries later in 1880, British spectroscopist John Caprone had a letter published in Nature magazine describing several circles he'd found. His theory was that, quote, cyclonic wind action had caused them. And in the 20th century, the Bristol Evening Post printed a letter from a Christine Dutton testifying that circles were seen on her family's farm from 1914 
1956, which she attributed to sudden sharp winds. Not until 1932, though, did the first account appear with supporting photographic evidence. It concerned a group of five rings at Bow Hill in West Sussex. There's actually mm. a picture of it on the blog page here. It's pretty amazing, and you can see the circle in the page. It's uh, visible yeah. in the foreground there. One eyewitness described a circle actually forming, writing to the Sunday Express, a Kathleen Skin stated that as a teenager in 1934, she was gazing over a field when she saw a whirlwind that caused, quote, a perfect circle of flattened corn hot to the touch, end quote. Wow. Yeah. And I can't remember where I read this. Somewhere in our travels of research on all this, I read that the English refer to every single crop as corn. It's not necessarily <laughs> literally corn. Oh, yes. And there's a, here's another website. I almost didn't want to. We just recently discovered It's like mm-hmm. every day when we've been working on this. It's like, all yeah. right, I'm just going to go and go to source this one thing. And the next thing, <laughs> you, it's like you're two yeah. hours in and 10 tabs open. And it's a whole new rabbit hole of really fascinating stuff. Yes. But you know what? Some of our biggest and most interesting discoveries have been like while we're on the air and like, <laughs> yeah, that's true about something and I'll punch up a, a web page or, or a tab like, oh, we got to talk about this. And the only time I don't like it is if we miss it for a show. And yes. Make it well, and, and this is one of those pages. It is by the same Terry Wilson that wrote the book that looks at the historical and older crop circles. And the implication is he's kind of retired from crop circling these days. And apparently he's hard to find, although we didn't try. So I don't know that that he might have been able to reach out to us if we asked him to, but his website is still up, oldcropcircles.weebly.com, and appears to be relatively maintained. Uh, Weebly's a newer platform, so I, you know, I, th- I think that's more recent, certainly, than a lot of uh, websites that we look at. And there's a page on here that I love. It's called Aerial Photography, and I was showing this to Forrest today, and it has some aerial photography of circles that are from a long time back. Uh, it's got a little section showing some from 1953, but then it also mentions another researcher, a Tasmanian researcher named Greg Jeffries, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S. And it says here on Terry's webpage, he has done some more in-depth work on the matter of old aerial images. Jeffries was able to take advantage of technological resources which were not available in the 1990s, specifically Google Earth's historical overlays, which provide a much better standard of photography. So, and this is something I know about. I've actually used this in the past. This is great. We, there's a time slider on Google Earth. You can just go yeah. back. It, it's really cool. And you can look it at it. It is old. pretty cool. I actually had yeah. to use it in my own neighborhood because there's a road here that wasn't here when I was right. in college and no one can figure out what, how it used to be. And I was like, let's yeah. go look at it uh, from back then. <laughs> it's it's kind of like your own, but... uh, yeah, your own free chronovisor. Yeah, exactly. You're looking into the past time with a simple slider button. And so according to Wilson here, who I'm presuming wrote this, this page on his own website to explain Google Earth, the aerial imaging software which covers the whole world, has introduced some overlays which contain images from earlier periods. There is a so called 1945 overlay available now which covers the Wessex area of England. In fact, the black and white images are a composite from the years 1945 through to 1950, although that's not important for our purposes. Jeffries approached the project with clear objectives to rule out, as best one can, images which seem to be photographic blemishes or imagery of mundane features. His method included testing a candidate feature on the ground for its permanency. Uh, was there evidence of it in the same spot in later years? And also for the details of any shadow visible. Bonafide crop circles should have a shadow along the edge closest to the sun as it shines across the top of the standing crop and have no shadow or possibly even an illuminated region on the opposite side. 
he discovered a good number of credible images from the 1945 stock, including this one below of a plain circle. It was seen in a field at Great Bookham in Surrey. So then there's this whole series of photos that look like the coolest like spy dossier you've ever seen <laughs> some movie you're watching from the 50s. And there's just crop circles everywhere. And there's even some crazy pyramid with an eye in it and four dots around it, like a triangle. Ooh. We're going to have a link to this page. But there's yeah. patterns here. And this is in the 40s and 50s. No one was paying attention yeah. to this. They weren't getting any press. No one was taking credit for this. So for those folks, you know, Doc Cogs, it's all fake, man. It's big bunch of hoaxes. <laughs> and it's like, well, what was going on here in 1945? Yeah. That's not how right, he sounds, right. by the way. And he's a good friend. Uh, but I'm just saying. <laughs> That's true. Yes. What was going on here in 1945? How do you explain that, Cogs? So, yeah. um <laughs> I, this is not fair. I'm calling him out and I'm not giving him a chance to come on here and defend himself, which is so. No, I think he would still say the same thing. It's yes. hella fake. It's but, hella fake. But these <laughs> well, pictures are very compelling, just on this one webpage. That's which, true. You know, right. And it shows that this is not something that necessarily started in the 70s, which also was still pretty interesting because no one was paying attention then either. Right, It was right. a private little experience. Yeah, well, then you got to wonder, were people faking it and hoaxing it then for a small audience or just for uh, S's and giggles? Where you go out there and uh, oh, just kind of goof around. I know. Well, they, look, <laughs> people uh, have a few pints. They get out the, uh, the old uh, wooden board and some uh, rope. And uh, we got to say how uh, uh, Dave and Doug did theirs because it's kind of funny. And that yes, document, we'll uh, that. the one yeah. documentary I saw, uh, they show you the little cap device with a baseball cap, a little sight that they used to get the lines right. Well, yes. here though, those are the two know, old do, guys that, uh, that yes. everyone thinks hoaxed every single crop circle in the world. Yeah, in '76. So yeah. that's early on because to that point, if they did that in '76, not for another maybe almost ten years, are people paying attention? Yes. So what were they doing then? Are they just annoying farmers, but they didn't like? So it's a little weird. It's a little strange, but we'll see that some of the people doing the hoaxing and admitting it are a little strange. It's a strange business all around. So you do wonder what's going on. And people could say, well, they're not as elaborate. There are elements of this evolution of the types of circles. And so the pyramid one is very compelling because it's a different shape. But these shapes start to employ the elements of sacred geometry, but also applying the golden mean and having sacred proportions. And so somebody's really thinking about this. That's what I'm saying is that it goes from possibly, maybe it is a whirlwind, you know, a dust devil in a field, which causes some of them. But with the characteristics that we're seeing later that are being documented, that's not possible. Right. Yeah, great find, man. Really interesting to see this. Some of the best stuff is kind of buried. Uh, additionally, one of the things that right. I found on the Wikipedia page, which is always a touchstone, it's like you, you, we don't trust it so yeah. much, but it's a good summary of things. And a lot of times it leads to great sources. Yeah. And one of the best things on there, I thought, was this movie, Phase 4, which is apparently a cult sci-fi <laughs> film uh, that uh -huh. I had not even ever heard of. Right. It's about ants or something that uh, go crazy and build structures in fields. Uh, they build some that look like crop circles. And this movie came out in 74. And there are oh. folks that have said it's what inspired the whole thing. I have seen this, I believe, as a youngster. Now, gosh, that name didn't ring a bell. You know what? The movies that did Andromeda Strain, of course, oh, that yeah, was yeah. Michael Crichton or whatever. And very strange. You got to go back and watch that. Phase four. I do. Here's what I remember. 
these people are living in a, uh, a geodesic dome or like a biosphere, right? So there are these scientists for whatever reason they're living in there. There are some very smart coordinated ants, like high yes. intelligence ants. Yeah, like uh, the aliens got to them and and then they got smart, the ants did. They I got real smart they, yeah. Yeah. and they're going up against these humans in this impenetrable dome or they're, they're figuring out ways to get in there. And I remember this scene specifically because what they do is they do build – you could say these uh, very short obelisk type shapes, yes. right? So diamond shaped kind of yes. things all around the biosphere. And they're able to get a kind of a silica coating, you know, on one side. And they were using the sun to cook these people out. I thought that was very clever oh, when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because they're getting the reflection and they're yeah. beaming it at this biodome. Like, oh my God, it's getting hot here. The ants are burning And the, the ants were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, well, oh, God, I didn't think of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Oh, I, the yeah. Well, there you go with the magnifying, yeah. right, the magnifying yeah. glasses on them now. For whatever it's worth, there are people that have looked at that film and said, well, first of all, we, we now know that circles, even in very clear ways, even in the 50s, yeah. predate that film. You could probably look to it for inspiration, and I'm sure that hoaxers, especially artistic ones, go to all kinds of interesting areas for inspiration and inside jokes, and I'm sure that they might have borrowed some things from there. But it does not appear to be, even by uh, researchers who are skeptical, it's not thought to be the origin of crop circles. I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, thanks. Right. You know, as you as we joked about, we had different mm -hmm. versions of the books. Uh, that we thought we were looking at the same material and well, we different weren't. books, yeah, Dif yeah, yeah right, completely right. different books. Both with Colin Andrews being one of the co-authors of them. Mm -hmm. The one I have being the actual, as I said earlier, circular evidence: a detailed investigation of the flattened, swirled crops phenomenon. Right, the word right. crop circle barely appears on it. He coined that phrase. This was written uh, with him and his friend Pat Delgado wrote this. Pat Delgado has since passed away, as we indicated, and uh, Busty Taylor was involved as well. And this is the first real book on Crop Circles came out in 1989. I had the book I had. I thought, well, this is the seminal book. It's yeah. Really, it's Circular Evidence is the seminal book. Right. And uh, yes, I do like to, because uh, it sounds very academic. It's and, very and, uh, Highfalutin. Yes. What you have there, Circular Evidence, as the Bible of Crop Circles. And it's very cool. And I, and I think I was joking with you about this because I'm, um, and I mentioned this in, in one mm -hmm. of our spots tonight, but I, I was at the beach a week or two ago for my son's spring <laughs> yes, break. You were, right. Um, right. We did have to... Uh, Cancel last year because of COVID, and this year um, both me and my my wife are vaccinated, and we decided we wanted we wanted to get him down to the beach for a mm -hmm. little trip that was at a quiet little beach. We weren't part of the spring break craze <laughs> in Fort Lauderdale sure? or Miami now, whatever that is. Yeah, I thought I saw you burning donuts in the middle yeah. of the uh, avenue there in Miami. No, no, but what I was going to say is it was funny because at one point I had gone out to eat by myself right. to um, have a, a dinner. And I was doing a little research on the break because, you know, you and I never really have any real time off. And I took, never take it off. Yeah, yeah, I took circular evidence with me and I went into uh -huh. this wonderful seafood restaurant at Carolina Beach in North Carolina. I'm walking in there with my circular evidence book. And I've been to plenty of places where I've been researching for us while I was there in public. But this was the first time I was like, I feel a little silly. Cause I'm like, I'm walking in with this crop circle, but crop circles, <laughs> no one's been talking about them for 15 yeah. years. Yeah. And then on top of that, I've got this ancient book with big picture of crop circles on the front. And on top of that has a fluorescent orange sticker that says 50% off. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one, that's a bargain. <laughs> Secondly, but here's the thing. That's the book you should be seen reading, not, I mean, again, nothing against 
Chicken Soup for the Soul, but yeah. everybody's reading that. No, That's my I know. Point. Just it's the waitress popular, was he, definitely, yeah. when she was over there, she was like, so I was like, yeah, I'll have the shrimp scampi. And she's like, okay. And she's like <laughs> glancing at the book and looking at me and glancing at the book. And I'm like, what, what? I'm, I'm taking notes on Cropster because I was furiously taking notes in my tiny notebook as well. So Okay. Let me just point this out. There are different shades. At the House of Pies, uh, kind yes. of where I used to, near where I used to live. Yeah. There was a guy who would come in. It would be late at night because, you know, after uh, you go have some drinks at a bar, it's like, what better, a pie or a, a turkey delight sandwich, yes. you know, uh, for the end of the evening. It was open 24 hours. And this guy would come in and he'd have a stack. And I mean like six, seven, eight spiral notebooks. Yeah. What it reminded me of, because I he was there quite a bit at the same time in the evenings, you know, late, like 11 o'clock, midnight, uh, having a sandwich or whatever. And I walked by one time and it was all these complicated equations. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you ever saw the movie, the Coen brothers movie, A Serious Man. I did. Yes. And uh, his brother, who was a genius or whatever, had the mentaculus and it was the, the formula for everything. And he, he, he used it to win at gambling and uh, he'd figured it all out. And it was all this complicated formula. And that's what the guy stacks of notebooks look like. And it's yeah. like, wow, he's either a genius having a sandwich here yeah, or, or he's, he's completely totally out of his tree. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he's, he's a nutter. Well, it, it was, it's turned out to be super interesting. And what yeah. I did was I did as the, some of the notes that I took in that were about cases that I thought particularly had interesting aspects to them. And I wanted to share some of those with our listeners as we get uh, to wrapping up part one here. And I know that people always joke, is it wrapping up part one? And then it's another hour, but yeah. these are cases that Colin and Pat and Busty investigated uh, back when nobody was investigating this stuff. Mm-hmm. There are many, many cases cited in here. I'm going to skip around some of them, and I'm going to be mentioning locations which will be foreign to people that are not from England, obviously. I'll do a little bit of trying to explain how they relate to each other, but I'm not going to go super deep into that because I don't think it's that critical. We'll explain more about uh, the Wessex area and where these are happening in part two. One of the places that comes up frequently is a place called Headburn Worthy or Headborn Worthy. Uh, this is just north of Winchester, uh, which is a prominent city in the in the story of the crop circles in southern England. And this is the earliest one listed in the book. In the summer of 1978, it was seen by farmer Ian Stevens in his own field. This is from page 17 of Circular Evidence, the paperback copy that I have. This was just a simple circle, just a circle. But the interesting thing was Mr. Stevens remembered another one from two years prior in 1976 in a place where it could easily be seen by passing traffic. Seven weeks prior to that one, there is a UFO story connected to a woman named Mrs. Bowles that's a fairly prominent story in England. And she had seen a UFO. This was just down the road from the one that had occurred in 1976. Now, there's two things I want to say here that I thought were interesting. One is that there's a two-year gap between these two, and these are the only two that are known at that particular time. Even though we found satellite images now that we just talked about from the 40s and 50s that show other ones in different areas around the countryside there. But with these two... Again, I always think, okay, is this real? Is this a hoax? Is it a natural phenomenon? It's less complicated, mm-hmm. which I think for me personally makes me lead to it more being a, a, some sort of natural phenomenon of some kind, but I don't believe sure, in whirlwinds, sure. not even a little. I think okay. it's, if it's anything, it's electrical or something like that. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, these are simple circles and they're two years apart. I am thinking uh, in terms of the two-year gap, if you're a hoaxer, that's a long time to you know do a circle. No one notices it really. You know, three people talk yeah, about it, and yeah. then two years later, you go back and make another one. Right. It just seems really unrewarding. But hey, whatever, <laughs> if that's what you want to do. All sure. right, so next, Litchfield, 1981. 
This is 15 miles north of Hedburn Worthy. Uh, this is from page 19 of Colin and uh, Pat's book. And I hope they forgive me for using their first names. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know them. I mean, no disrespect. Yeah. We have exchanged messages with Colin, which we'll be referring to in part two of this series. We are in touch with Colin Andrews, who is not giving interviews right now, but we were able to make a connection with him thanks to a friend of ours. Litchfield, 1981, 15 miles north of Hedborn Worthy. This one formed overnight next to a very busy road. No one saw anything. The neighboring road included, uh, the traffic included cars, trucks, and buses, or lorries as they say. Again, this is three years later. 1981 also, these are very busy years we're getting into here. The Punch Bowl, as it's called. Cheesefoot Head. (laughs) These Mm -hmm, names. Delicious. This is now six miles southeast of the 1976 and 78 Hedborn Worthy sightings. Uh, and this is on page 21. This is the first one that made national news in England. And this is also the first one that Colin Andrews, the researcher and author himself, saw up close personally. This was one large circle flanked by two smaller ones all along a line. So you got the small circle and then a big circle and then a small circle all in a line. Now, mm-hmm. there's a critical note here. Uh, there's tram lines, which I think we've already explained. Uh, I can't remember because we record this out of yeah, order. We did, yeah. Okay, yeah. the tram line is where the tractor wheel goes through the field. They are nearly non-existent in this particular field because of the year, meaning uh, it, it would be nearly impossible to get out to where these circles appeared without leaving an obvious trail if you were a hoaxer. At least that was Collins' position in 1989 when this book was published. Mm-hmm. Now, the lack of tram lines is explained by the fact that there was very little crop spraying done back then. You weren't going in and out of the fields all the time spraying the crops. You were growing them and letting them alone, which we probably should go back to. Litchfield, 1982. This is on page 23 of the book. Two circles, second year in a row at the same location. Colin interviewed the farmer, Jeff Thompson. And as of 1989, when the book was published, he had not seen circles prior to 1981 or after 1982. He said, quote, it was just like something had landed in the cornfield from the air and gone back up again. I don't know what to make of these things. Actually, that's Ian Stevens saying that. That's the other farmer. Now, the thing about Litchfield is, according to Colin Andrews, it is located near uh, the Seven Barrels Burial Mounds, although the seven aren't all there anymore because some of them have been sadly destroyed for, I think, for roads and not a lot of a development out there. It's still a rural area. Mm-hmm. But I think this was back before that stuff was treated with the respect it deserved. But this particular circle was also uh, 700 meters from the grave of the fifth Earl of Carnivarns, who was the guy that opened yeah. Tut's tomb. Yeah. Right. And died right. shortly after that. Yeah. Yes. And his, his uh, Irish wolf dog, I believe, let out a howl. Yes. At the moment he died and, and was a long ways away. There's a psychic dog connection there. Moving on, 1983, Cheesefoot Head. Mm. Same location as 1981. This is from page 27. This is the first time for the dice pattern, meaning that it looks like the five on a side of dice. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is symmetrical in layout, but not in size. It has a single large center circle and then four equidistant satellites. The large circle in the center in this case was 16 meters in diameter or 52 Mm. and a half feet. The four smaller circles were about four meters in diameter or 13 feet each. Now, again, when you look at the picture of this one from the day it was discovered on pages 26 and 27 of Patton Collins' book, the surrounding field is pristine. The road is not very nearby, but notably there's only one track leading out to them where you can see somebody crossed out or back Mm -hmm. from them, and that was from a member of the public who had walked onto the farmer's land without permission to look at them. But for that track, there's no identifiable track or tram line for people to have walked in to hoax it. So... That's one of those situations where I, I, you know, unless I'm, and I need to, I'm going to look at this again while we're talking about it real quick. 
just make sure I'm not misspeaking because this is a rabid group of people about the details on these things. Mm. I don't want to make any mistakes. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to show you this on Zoom right now since we're talking on Zoom. Yeah. See yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And see, the only track is from the person in the public who went out there. The rest of it, you can't get to it. Yeah. You can clearly see that. And, and that also is representative, as we said before, of uh, sacred geometry and the Celtic cross. Exactly. And there's going to be more on that in a minute. One thing that the authors are making an observation of at this point in time is that these seem to be occurring near bodies of water, either dew ponds, which are artificial ponds on high ground for watering livestock, or in some cases near underground sources of water that only the locals are aware of. They are not occurring directly over them, but near or within 100 meters of them in many cases. Here's another one, 1985, Matterly Farm, Gander Down, again, within 12 miles or so of the others we've discussed so far. This is from page 31. The stalks, as they have been with the others, are all bent, not broken, not damaged, but bent. The stalks that would normally snap if you tried to bend them 90 degrees, according to Colin and Pat. And in addition to this, they were still growing and continued to grow horizontally. Now, several weeks later, the sprouts that fell off these stalks grew new green crops in the shape of the circle, um, which is there's nothing paranormal about that. It's just interesting because the sprouts dropped, and right. then the field was harvested, and then the circle grew up as a green thing, which is, makes you think about if these happened, if this happened in ancient times in crops yeah. back when harvesting was a different thing and uh, right. done by hand, the additional impact that that might have had on ancient peoples, seeing it yeah. grow up in a pattern. Yeah, it's a cool echo, you know what I'm saying? It's a callback, yeah. if it were yeah, a joke, a or, or, or a story portion here of narrative. And by the way, I want to make clear, even though the uh, Pat and Colin worked on circular evidence together, it's made clear that Colin wrote all these descriptions in this particular part of the book. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is really about him, these these things that I'm relaying. August 3rd, 1985, uh, Goodworth Clatford, this is from page 33. This is the first circle sighted by Colin and Pat's friend, the pilot, Busty Taylor, who we've referred to uh, a few times. He spotted it from his plane with the number five dice pattern. But in addition to that pattern, they showed a very symmetrical spiral pattern that went back to the center for all of the circles. Now, it was this one that Busty drove out to the next day in a car. And while he was there, an army helicopter showed up, hovered and circled. And uh, the folks he was with were looking at the helicopter. He was looking away or studying the circle. He saw a bright blue flash. This comes up over and over, not just with Busty, with lots of other people investigating these blue flashes. And uh, you're going to hear about something else here in a minute that seems to be fairly prominent. And it it was like a camera flash, he said, but it didn't come from the helicopter. And the others with Mm -hmm. him didn't see it because they were looking at the helicopter. And that's not the only instance of blue light or electrical phenomena being connected with crop circles. The other thing this one had was a white jelly-like substance, a gelatinous substance. And uh, they gathered that up. They sent it to a university as well as another lab, which conducted tests. And they found it did not contain any commercial sweeteners or honeys, which you would (laughs) expect to find if it was some sort of consumable or confectioner. So they're still not sure what that was. Let's say a hoaxer's out there, he drops his jelly donut. It can't be a jelly donut because whatever that stuff is, is not meant to be edible. And mm. so it's, it's just a strange thing. Mm-hmm. 1986, Hedburn Worthy again. This is from page 37 of the book. The local farmer says as uh, Colin uh, tracks him down, because Colin, a lot of times he gets a report, he goes out, then he has to find the farmer, get permission to go right. in the field, all that kind of stuff. So he said the farmer told him, oh, yeah, where, where is it? Oh, it's in that field this year, is it? He then added, the farmer, that his dad used to point them out to him on their land going back to when he was a kid, at least 28 years. That would put the year his dad first started telling him about them as 1958. 
and the farmer at that point described them as commonplace. When Colin went back to check this one out the next day on Saturday, August 16th, he saw a small, gray-colored, disc-shaped object in the sky that moved quickly in a non-ballistic fashion before disappearing behind a cloud. He stared at the cloud for a long time, waiting for it to emerge, and it never came out. And something that still bothers him to this day. Yeah. He just went into it and never came back. Cheesefoot Head, 1986, page 41. Notable detail here. There was some of the barley in the field that mice presumably had removed the heads from the stalks. Those stalks and those ones only did not lay down with the rest. They were still standing. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Because if you're going through the field with a board or whatever to hoax it, Mm -hmm. are you selectively not laying down the ones... (laughs) That, I mean, how would you even be able to see that in the dark? Right. Or maybe right. naturally they're more resistant to being depressed because they don't mm. have something for a board or something to catch on in the event that you're talking about a hoax in that case. Mm-hmm. 1986, Childry Wantage. This is from page 43. Notable detail. First circle ever with what Colin Andrews calls a path. This is not a path like you would use to get to it, but it's a straight line swath connected to an outer ring around an inner circle. This is the beginning of what you might call a more key-like pattern. It's like a key. So you got the circle, but then there's this path sticking off of it, which will make you think of the Led Zeppelin album cover. Which Oh, th- that's the Alton Barnes Yes, the Alton formation, Barnes right? formation, right. which is famous one of the most famous one. ones because they put it on, Led Zeppelin put it on their remastered box set, uh, that's right. which I <laughs> that's have, right. by the way. Yeah. Although I couldn't, I wanted to take a picture of it, but it's buried in a closet. So I'm going to try yeah. and get to it before we finish this series. But yeah, so that's an amazing set there. We'll talk about that in a little more detail in part two as well, because that one has its own story. 1986, Longwood Estate. This is from page 45 of the book. Busty Taylor is flying with his son, Nigel, Colin, uh, and possibly Pat in an airplane, although Pat is not mentioned by name. They're flying over some previously investigated circles. And Busty says, quote, Mm -hmm. all we want now is to find all the formations we've seen to date wrapped into one, like the Celtic cross, end quote. That's what he's saying inside the airplane to three or maybe four people. Because like I said, it's not clear whether Pat's in the plane with them or not. I kind of think he probably wasn't, but I'm, I don't know. I think he's saying, wouldn't that be cool if yeah. one we saw Everything we've seen up combined. until now, all yeah. in one thing, they're in the airplane. What I'm saying is there's no witnesses except for these three guys in the plane mm-hmm. that are hearing this. The very next morning, Busty's flying over this exact area where he said it, and that exact thing was in a field below them. The astonished pair saw below them all the formations seen to date wrapped into one, forming the Celtic cross. It had appeared since the previous flight 31 hours earlier, and the intervening night had been very wet with heavy rain. So that is it. Of course, they have a picture of it, and they're standing it. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So, But it's in, in terms of the Celtic cross, uh, we'll have a representation of that on our show notes uh, where you can see it. But essentially, they got exactly what he asked for. And this is something that's going to recur, not just with this team, but with all kinds of people. And it may even go so far as creating a connection between people meditating and trying to get certain shapes to appear and what the hoaxers are doing, which is uh, something that we'll be uh, getting into a little bit more. Well, in my book here, Crop Circle Signs of Contact, that happened to both Colin Andrews, of course, and Stephen J. Spinezi. Yeah. They both got a crop circle that they had meditated on and yes. asked for. Yeah. So there it's you go. It's part of the phenomenon. Yeah. And here's another uh, notable point. Uh, stocks in the tram lines are less healthy and they're shorter because of the tractors drive down them. So right. they do not necessarily lay down when circles are formed, just for the record. Hmm. Hmm. 
1987, May, South Wanston, uh, this first one of the year. While investigating this one with his dad, Colin and his dad both saw a bright flash of blue light. And then they heard a loud crackling sound. Again, this is something that lots of people have heard at different circles. The family was with him in the car 25 meters or 82 feet away, heard it too. They could not identify the source. Another thing that Colin says here, too, is that a perfect circle is actually very unusual. Hmm. I think there's a statistic in this book anyway. I'm pretty sure it was from Circular Evidence, where he says about 2% of them are perfect. Interesting. Uh, 1987, White Parish. And this is right out of Richard Haddam's screenplay for the Mothman Prophecies. Because right. he, he went over and he couldn't, they, I guess he couldn't find the farmer. So he's over investigating this one. And the guy comes up and is like, who the hell are you? What are you doing in my field? Yeah. So they, I guess the farmer then had called the cops and a constable came and had to talk him down and get him calm and convince him that it was okay to talk to Colin. And after he got calm, he said, these have been showing up for years. He was convinced that people were making them. After the cop got him calm, he wound up uh, being more open with Colin about it. That was a circle with a ring. And what was interesting about it was that the spiral pattern for the, the crops that were laid down in the circle was clockwise, but the ring on the outside was counterclockwise. Sometimes there's a clockwise and counterclockwise swirling. Yes. And sometimes that swirling is interwoven, braided with each other on the edges. Yes. Now here we're getting into some more uh, specific details that are highly unusual. 1987, Kempton, about 20 miles northwest of the earlier ones at Hedburn Worthy. It's from page 63 of the book. The farmer that owns the land is a Mr. Flambert. Notable details about this one is Busty had noticed the ring as he was approaching the Thruxton airfield to land. Colin goes out by car to check it out, and on the way, he runs to two boys looking for a ball who told him they had seen, quote, an orange glowing object over the field behind the cemetery on Saturday, June 13th, end quote. After that, a couple of elderly folks asked Colin if he was there to investigate strange noises they had heard in the field a few days prior, which also would coincide with that Saturday. What was odd about the circle is that it was really just a ring, and on top of that, it was oval. That was it. It was just an oval ring, real simple. It was 33 feet long on its major axis and 30 feet on the minor axis, and it was uh, only 60 centimeters wide. Now, the farmer, Mr. Flambert, said that rings normally appear during long dry spells. This is something that multiple farmers have also said, by the Mm -hmm. way, dry spells. But we know that rings can occur in all conditions, but the farmers, for some reason, think of them as happening during dry spells, which I thought was interesting. Maybe there's a connection there to uh, more static electricity, or electricity in the air. Yeah, and if you'll remember, we talked earlier, or I did, about some analysis that Nancy Talbot did with BLT Research. About the and aquifers. And Dr. W.C. Levengood. Yeah, in that as the water subsides during the warmer months and, and less rain, mm-hmm. as it percolates through that chalky soil, mm-hmm. the edges or where it's percolating generates more electricity. Yeah. Generates an electrical charge, which is greater the further the water goes down. So right, that right. may have something to do with it. Because Well, that's the thing. They overlay that with where a lot of the crop circles are found, and it lines up. The other thing, which is interesting, we also talk about, uh, Colin Andrews does, about where these pop up. We said earlier, where these happen. Well, they happen at a lot of sacred sites around England, especially south-central England, Avebury, Wiltshire, Stonehenge, places that were sacred to ancient peoples where they took notice and worshiped the geography of their environment and made these sacred places and made these mounds, Silbury Hill, I think also Salisbury Hill, all these different places, these mounds, 
things seem to happen around them. And also where the white horse is on the sides of the hill, the white horses that to pagan and Celtic belief, ancient beliefs, I believe, uh, would take you into the afterlife. And uh, actually, one of the logos I wanted or kicked around, I thought, for an early Astonishing Legends logo was the White Horse of Uffington. Yes, we both were in it. I like that, too. Yeah, it's just beautiful, simple design. It's yeah. elegant. You you know what it is by looking at it. Yeah, ancient people's design. So around these places, uh, you'll find more concentrations of crop circles. And also, what Colin found is in the U.S., was our old trope, native American burial grounds. And if you go back to what we learned from Linda Godfrey and Beast of Bray Road and all of her books, Weird Michigan, that there is a correlation between strange sightings and native grounds, burial grounds, and crop circles and different things that happen. So what's the connection there? You got to wonder. Yeah. And and that's something that they talk about. And the, the other question is, was Stonehenge a monument to a crop circle? Right because they were already occurring there and they wanted to preserve that indefinitely. And again, we'll talk about that more in our conclusions. Well, getting yeah. back to this one at Mr. Flambert's film, Colin also mentions an archaeologist named Max Dacre, D-A-C-R-E, uh, because he had previously found a valuable archaeological site beneath some rings. I, I think we already mentioned this, but the remains of archaeological structures can create variances in the crops. So you can actually use that to determine that there may be a site there that you didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Flambert had experience with this, but when he came over to this particular one with Colin, he said himself, this isn't archaeological. I've never seen anything like this before. Well, then there's a series of incidents that take place with this one that are particularly poignant. When Colin went back on June 29th to check out a new circle near the ring from June 13th, he was recording details about it. Uh, this is on page 65 of the book, into his dictaphone, uh, which is an early personal recorder for those who've never heard of that, when he experienced what he described as a black flash. He says he flinched and that the sun was completely blotted out for a second, but he looked up, nothing was there. So he still doesn't know Mm. what happened. Later, he returns with his parents and the family dog. An editor for the Flying Saucer Review, Gordon Crichton, had said that it might be interesting to see what a dog would do at a circle. So Colin's father walked their dog into the field where it seemed super into going until it reached a point parallel with the (laughs) ring, uh, which it could not have seen from its height, and the dog stopped cold. Colin's dad tried to get it to continue, but it refused and began throwing up profusely and got super sick. So his parents had to take the dog back to the car and then drive it back home, and uh, which was about a 20-minute drive. And when they got there, it was fine. It, it hmm. totally recovered. So that night, he returns to investigate further. Having been intrigued by all the anomalous phenomena, he stops 10 meters or 33 feet from the original ring and facing a smaller, newer circle to the north. And he thought internally, quote, God, if you would only give me a clue as to how these are created, end quote. At that point, a static electrical cracking noise started to come from a spot about three meters away from him. It grew louder and louder, up to a pitch where he expected a bang to follow. Frightened, he looked towards the village to check his quickest route out of the field. He fought to control his panic, but remained still. As suddenly as it had started, it stopped. It had lasted about six seconds, though it seemed longer. He said he saw nothing, and nothing moved. Here's another one, Cheesefoot Head, 1987. This is a circle with a ring. Pat Delgado had been there the night before to inspect it. Nothing was there as of 10.30 p.m. when he left. 
Uh, they appear in the punch bowl every year, but this was the first one for 1987. Notable details on this one, although intersecting some tram lines, it was a long way into the field and far away from any easy access, as Colin says. A long, careful walk without the aid of a light in a tram line would have been required. The night it appeared, two eyewitnesses, both named by Colin and Circular Evidence, were coming home, driving past the area that night when they saw a row of bright lights above the trees on the far side of the bowl. The lights seemed to be dancing along and even to be leapfrogging. They looked as though they were detached from one another. The witnesses felt sure that what they had seen were not aircraft, but UFOs. Hmm. Another one on Cheesefoot Head uh, later had a spiral pattern on the floor of the circle, almost like parted hair. And he explained that the directions changed symmetrically, and this would be very difficult to do. This was another one that stood out to me, too. Uh, page 81 of the book, uh, Westbury, 1987. So many are appearing now, they can't even get to them when they're fresh. They are literally popping up everywhere. Yeah. So this incident was particularly bizarre, where a new circle or event had happened on top of an old one that originally had a clearly clockwise pattern spiral swirl. The floor of that circle was now confused, as Colin says. Uh, they checked against the helicopter pilot photos and confirmed it had been counterclockwise and neat originally, but was now clockwise and a mess. And other circles that were separated had now joined together. This is from page 81 of his book. Nine mm -hmm. totally mysterious circles had now appeared in just five days in the area. Jeff Cooper farms opposite the field in which both set of circles, three and two, had been found. He told us he had owned the field a few years ago before selling and had been finding circles in it for the last seven years. He said, quote, one night our dog went silly barking, real nasty-like. Usually he would stop on a firm command, but not that night. He went on for ages, really upset he was. <laughs> I wish now I had looked out, because when I did in the morning, I could see five circles had appeared in the corn during the night. I don't think they are made by people. We've tried to make them with ropes, poles, and so on, but they just cannot be replicated, end quote. And uh, this particular one, they're actually a photo of it. There's an Army helicopter over it, too. Yeah. The Army's photographing these as well, which is interesting if it's a bunch of hoaxes. It seems that there's some involvement there that's more marked than you would think it would be. Well, I'll uh, I'll spill the beans on a little bit of uh, footage that I saw that you, you did not because you got the documentary uh, Quest for Truth streaming, whereas I, I bought the DVD years ago, I think closer to 2003, and mm -hmm. some of the bonus footage has a clip of uh, a video which, you know, people could say, well, you've added the balls of light in afterwards, except... I believe this is corroborated by stills that appear in this book. And, and this one says, a photo taken on August 4th, 1987, of a military helicopter above a field in Westbury, in which three simple crop circles appeared. The helicopter was piloted by Captain D.F. Borrell of the 658th Squadron, British Army Air Corps. And his assignment was to photograph the circles. You notice, uh, you can see them in the photo here. Note the far left circle between the tram lines with no visible means of access. That's what you are talking about before. A circle appears between the tram lines, no pathway cut between them. Yeah, and too far to jump or build a bridge to, yeah. The, these are pretty big circles. Not the biggest. Some of them are massive. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about one that I think is 406 circles. Yes. Massive circles that appeared overnight. So it says here, note the far left circle between the tram lines with no visible means of access. The plants in the right-hand circle had originally swirled counterclockwise, but later a second event in which the plants inexplicably reversed their swirl to clockwise orientation. It's almost like this thing's a machine you wind up, 
some kind of higher advanced uh, technology, you let it go. But if you do it over the same circle, it just makes a mess. Yeah. It might be some kind of device that we don't know about. But in the video clip, you can see the British Army Air Corps helicopter playing tag with this thing. Yeah. These several balls of light. And it's claimed by uh, William Gazecki, I believe, and, and Colin Andrews that this footage is authentic. Because then you say, like, well, the balls are added later. What is the helicopter doing? Just weird maneuvers over a, a field of crops uh, right. with the circles there. It's kind of following it. They dart along. The balls of light are doing their thing. The helicopter is keeping close by, but it's it's definitely there. All right. Well, here's my question on this, because I you have sourced that and not me, and I haven't looked into mm -hmm. that. But it, if you were a CGI artist or a, a, a special effects person, then you would put the balls of light, you would lead the helicopter with them when you added it. Sure. What I'm saying is that the motions of the helicopter are odd. It's not just flying straight line over a field. Yeah, it's, yeah. It looks like they're kind of playing tag. You know what I'm saying? They're, yeah. They're one's backing up and it goes forward. And I haven't seen the clip in a long, long time. You just reminded me of this. Actually, this photo did. It's like, I couldn't remember where I saw it because I did also stream the documentary and on Amazon Prime where it's available for free if you subscribe to Amazon Prime. It's there. But of course, that's my one big gripe about a lot of streaming stuff is that it doesn't have the bonus features of a yeah. DVD. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So it's on there. I'll dig it up. We can't, of course, uh, we don't own the rights to that, but uh, right. Scott and I can look at it. But yeah, I do definitely remember like, yep, it's there. It doesn't look, you know, at that time I'd, I'd been working as a video editor for a very long time, was very familiar with like a video toaster effects and some cheese ball uh, special effects you could do. And it didn't appear to me to be that way. Now, I'm not an, a special effects expert, but it just, uh, I think for the time when that came out in the, the early to mid-90s, it wouldn't have been that easy, as you always say. There's yeah, no, that's there's no true. after effects. Yeah. No, but there, there are ways to do it. And there is another story about that related to balls right. of light over oh, a field yes. and, and the circles yes. appearing that is confirmed to have been post-produced as a special visual effects, which is about from the same time period. So, Well, that I believe. But yeah. here's the, the other thing, is that there are a lot of eyewitness accounts of people claiming this before it became kind of a thing right. to claim that you saw. So uh, could they all be wrong? Well, certainly, possibly. Uh, yeah. Is it likely that every, you know, out of the hundreds and hundreds of reports of balls of light having some effect on the making of these things and being seen in the fields... And not always at the same time. People have reported them, and then weeks later, there'll be a, a pattern in the field where they saw the ball. Or the balls of light come afterwards, days later. Yeah. So there's some connection. It's like the Kira object. It just kind of shows up when it wants and disappears and has fun with the kids. Yes. Episode 176 and 177, <laughs> the Kira objects, part one and part two. Yeah. May 2020 is when part one dropped. Oh. Yeah. That was one of my 2020. favorites. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So here's one of the last things I want to share, and then we're going to, we are, I am going to wrap this one up. But uh, okay, this is very it. good. On page 103 of Circular Evidence, 1987, this is another one at Winterbourne Stoke, Saturday, August 22nd, 1987, actually. These circles are overlooked by a busy road. There's multiple circles produced. Uh, you can read about them. What's more strange is a military incident that happened in this case, a Harrier incident. Uh, this involved a jet. That was, uh, I don't know if you know what, uh, and I'm saying this you to a listener, what a Harrier <laughs> jump jet is. It's yeah. a jet that is a vertical takeoff and landing airplane, a British aerospace aircraft. 
that doesn't right. need a runway to take off. Yeah. Uh, if you've seen the movie True Lies, there's one very prominently in, in that film. Uh, but if you... <laughs> Our own uh, Marine Corps is uh, have purchased some of those, I believe. Yes. And, and uh, those are the ones they fly. I don't know if they still do, but yes. Yeah, it's great because you don't need a runway to land it. Well, uh, this happened in October 22nd, 1987. This is two months after those circles turned up. And uh, here's what happened. The, the Harrier crashed, and this is according to an accident report on a website, that some of these details may be not quite right. There's different details in different places for this, including in Colin's book, uh, in terms of miles and uh, that sort of thing. But this plane crashed into the Atlantic 250 miles southwest of the Irish coast after flying for at least one and a half hours without the pilot, Taylor Scott. The parachute deployment rocket had fired through the canopy, dragging him out of the cockpit. Oof. So what happened was he he made his last radio call at 1,706 hours, did not make or answer radio calls after this time. There's an unconfirmed theory that he passed out from oxygen starvation at 30,000 feet due to incorrect use of pilot's oxygen supply and that an inadvertent ejection might have been caused by him wrongly attempting to adjust the height of the seat whilst in flight. The pilotless airframe, meaning the plane with no pilot, was intercepted mm. by a USAF transport aircraft, either a Lockheed C-5 or C-141, the crew of which confirmed the status of the aircraft. They reported that there was no one in the cockpit. They videoed the Harrier continuing west with seat, a broken canopy, and no pilot. Eventually ran out of fuel, crashed in the Atlantic 250 miles west of Ireland. Apparently there's videotape of that. Uh, according to this, there's an update here, and they said, yes, they confirmed it was a C-5 Galaxy that intercepted it. Uh, which mm. is a huge aircraft. Um, but And there was tape somewhere of, of the plane flying by itself. But when you when you read um, Collins' uh, description of this, which is pretty interesting, on Thursday, 22nd October, a Harrier GR5 jump jet piloted by Taylor Humphrey Scott took off from Dunsfold in Surrey for a test flight over Salisbury Plain. When it reached this spot at 5.06 p.m., west of the top-secret aircraft establishment at Boscombe Down, Radio contact was suddenly lost. The pilot had just passed a routine message to the control tower at Boscombe Down, which did not indicate any problem. All aircraft in the area were alerted, and finally an American transporter sighted the Harrier 90 miles southwest of Ireland. They shadowed the jump jet, we just explained this, for 410 miles before it eventually ditched in the Atlantic. His body was found on the evening of uh, October 23rd in a field overlooking the mysterious circles at Winterbourne Stoke. So two months after those appeared... What mm-hmm. happened was this – whatever happened with him, and it might have just yeah. been some yeah. mundane sort of thing, but it happened right – almost right directly over this set of circles. Something else that is pointed out in circular evidence here and in – no, sorry, not in circular evidence, but in one of the documentaries we watched or because we watched three of them, there's a lot of footage taken from helicopters. You know, now there's mm-hmm. drones. It'd be a lot easier to check this out. <laughs> yep. I think you pointed that out earlier today. Yep. But um, the pilots, the helicopter pilots would, wouldn't fly directly over them. Uh, a lot hmm. of them, because they uh, experienced instrumentation issues. Well, as we said, yeah, that's one of the uh, indicators that Colin says is that there's magnetic disturbance. Yeah. And electromagnetic disturbance in these things. And people can feel them. Some people feel uh, lightheaded, get headaches, uh, but also elated yeah. and buoyed and feel good. <laughs> so it's a gamut of weird feelings when you walk into them physically. And he said that's one of the telltale signs of that being uh, authentic or hoaxed. Yeah, and some people get sick and apparently have to get out of them. They can't stay in them. I think in part two, there's some weird, real weird stuff that happens to Pat and Colin. Yes. And maybe Busty at Cheesefoot Head. 
Yeah, and, and it was just uh, it was we'll the year after later. this book came yeah. out, after Circuit right, of Evidence, right. which is why it's not in there. It was the very next year, 1990, yeah. I think. Well, folks, we're going to wrap it up here. We did want to address right before we go, though, that famous, famous story of the two old guys, Doug and Dave, who <laughs> supposedly hoaxed all the crop circles, which sure. uh, allowed so many people to write them off. Um, this is Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley. These guys came out. Uh, they went on the news. They explained how they made them with these boards and ropes. And a good part of the world said, hey, you know what? Mystery solved. What's on the telly? What else is on? <laughs> but it's interesting. Yes. You look at Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley. According to uh, the One on Earth documentary, Inside the Crop Circles Mystery, there's a bit of a conspiracy theory, and which we're not proponents of in general, but this yeah. is uh, fascinating in the grand scheme of things. But conspiracies do happen. There's a long list of real live conspiracies, MK Ultra, oh, and whatever you know, you can yes. name them all. Mm -hmm. But when they went to do the research to try to determine where these stories came from for, with Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley, it was put out by a, a press service agency called MBF Services. And some of these folks started looking into MBF services. They could find no such press agency. Eventually, they tracked it down to an address. And the address, there was not a press agency there. And on top of that, uh, you know who was paying the rent on the address? The <laughs> British Ministry of Defense. It's Universal Exports. It's James yeah. Bond's company. Oh, <laughs> Universal Exports. Well, that's a, because the press release and the information with Doug and Dave, it was... As described in the documentary, and I have to agree, it was perfect. It went global overnight. Mm -hmm. The whole world saw it in a matter of days. Everybody was like, mystery solved. Let's move on. Nothing to see here. It was perfectly executed. And then when they tried to source where this came from, apparently, they tracked it back to either empty space or space that belonged to the British Ministry of Defense. Well, that does echo what Colin says in this book, where he's, over the years, seen efforts by both the intelligence agencies of the U.S. and the U.K., well, uh, Britain, to throw money at researchers and get them off the track with attractive book deals, all in an ultimate attempt to make you look foolish, divert you, throw some uh, roadblocks in your way. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it turns out those kinds of actions and the idea that possibly there's a disinformation campaign going on is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what's really behind the story of the crop circles. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. We'll be back in two weeks with some more analysis, insight, and our final conclusions on Crop Circles. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. I'm Devin Fisher. Sheila. David Dickinson. Addison. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Or future compensation. E-D-D-F-I-S-H. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>